Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Morning and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we will discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. This morning, I speak with trans woman, advocate, and podcaster Frida Wallace from Manchester. She'll be sharing her experiences as a trans woman living in today's Britain and her observations of the current culture war with trans being very much in the front lines. I'll be intrigued to see how this conversation unfolds. I then welcome to RCR Javen Anado from Young Vision. We'll talk about their gender steadfast policy and what it is like for those who hold traditional gender views on current New Zealand campuses. Marty will be back with Media Matters and we will catch up with how things have unfolded in the week in politics and the wider media. And also too, Woke News of the Week this week will be an article just released from Courageous Discourses and John Leake around the dictatorship without tears. It's now time to check in with all the animals on Aotearoa Farm. Outside the barn, a small cluster of young hoggets, dispatched by the older rams and ewes, wait for the news of negotiations in the final formation of the farmhouse table. I'm bored. Are they done yet? As hours stretched into days, the sheep skittered and belated it the lack of any news of import, and it was starting to make themselves restless. They all knew that trucks came for sheep who no longer proved their worth. Meanwhile, high up in the loft at the back of the barn, Oinky Lux was deep in discussions with Davy Piglet and Winnie Ben. Oinky was pleased with progress. The stories he'd heard about Winnie were largely unfounded. He was a tough negotiator, but the old donkey had much more in common with Oinky's vision of the farm than he had expected. It was a balancing act between ego and expectations of Davy Piglet that was Oinky's real challenge. So far, so good, and all three did find secret gratification in making the sheep wait. 
After a day's long negotiations, Winnie looked over to Oinky with a salacious smile. Do you fancy having a spot of fun, Oinky? The constant bleating of boredom was grating on all three, so Oinky bit at Winnie's bait. What are you thinking, Winnie? Neck minute, all three animals were rummaging through their pockets, dumping the contents out on the negotiating table. Out of wee Davy's pocket plopped a small spinning top, a small Christmas trinket from Christmas crackers past. Perfect, exclaimed Winnie. Right, lads, watch and learn. They wound up for the evening, ready to adjourn until the next day. Davy and Winky just glanced at each other, thoroughly perplexed at what the old donkey was up to. The next morning, when they met to reconvene, they all arrived and ran the gauntlet through the young flock. Any news, Winky? bleated one. Will we have a decision today? said another. As Oinky and Davy entered the barn, they looked back to see Winnie Ben clopping up the farm's cobblestones as all the hoggets parted, peppering him with questions. Winnie just smiled broadly and then focused on one. When will we have a result, Winnie? he asked, starstruck. Winnie just chuckled and replied, I've got you a present, and handed Wolsey Lamb a spinning top. And with a swish of his tail, he proceeded to the barn to settle in for his day's work. After several hours hashing out feed distribution, overzealous stretch investigations, and the radical Kuni Kuni issues, Winky stopped and looked across to Winnie Ben and asked, Explain this morning to me, Winnie. I'm confused. Winnie Ben chuckled. Just watch and learn, Winky. Trust me. Davy sighed. He bored quickly of Winnie Ben's shenanigans. As they left for the day, the sheep were gone, and across the farm, whispered bleats could be heard about this mysterious spinning top and what did it mean. That's incredible, exclaimed Winky. No, it's not, replied Winnie Ben. It's predictable. The sheep are bored and easily distracted. We will be done when we're done. Not when the sheep want us to be done. I'll see you boys tomorrow. And with that, Winnie Ben was gone into the night with only the faint glow of a cigar to be seen. Join us next week and we'll see if our three leaders have made it out of the barn here on Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on RCR and Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Um, I've got a really special guest this morning and I'm really excited to talk to her. Frida Wallace, out of Manchester in the UK, writer and speaker. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. How are you? Well, good morning. It's a bit strange saying good morning. It's like 20 to 7 p.m. where I am, but I uh, yeah, good morning. Good and it's morning. nice to speak to you. It's great to speak to you. And when I was doing my research, in your bio, you said something that really stood out to me. It said, trans people are often spoken about, but really spoken to. And yeah. I'd love to know, and this is why we're here. So tell me, who is Frida Wallace? 
Um, who's <laughs> Frida Wallace? Well, how far back do you want to go? I mean, I, I, I suppose I'll start from where I started speaking in the media because, like I said, I I, I listen to a lot of radio. I'm a, I love radio. I love voices on the radio. I cannot sleep at night unless I'm listening to what we have Radio 4 or the World Service. And I listen to documentaries. And I've been doing that since I was, I can remember, even before it got called podcasts, because that's what it basically is now. But uh, I'd listen to conversations from people from all over the world. And, and that is that is what I love. I love conversations. So I, I, I started to listen to more. And when I, when I came out as trans, I'd hear things about trans people, but it always felt like I was being talked about. Like I, I, there was never, there was very rarely somebody that had that experience of transitioning or identifying or being gender incongruent um, present in those debates. And, and increasingly over the last, I'd say, five or six years, the debate did, has become more toxic. It's become what I would call, I think, what is known as culture war issues, where there is the sense that there, there's a societal problem and people are looking for things to blame for perhaps things they feel personally. That you know, I think the, the whole world is changing in a way. The, the world is changing very fast at the moment. I think trans people have been caught up in what I would, could describe as a world transition almost. Like, like if, you, if you think about uh, geopolitics at the moment it's very scary you know people are very insecure when people are insecure they tend to uh, try and find a reason outside of themselves for why the world is so so you'll see especially on social media people get fed things that they don't necessarily sign up for you know they'll be like you know lots of things that they they get shown I think an image of trans people or pride celebrations or drag queens or we had this thing about drag queen story hour that kept coming up and I can see how people get angry at that. I can see where that might wind people up and why, you know, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And it's like, it's, it's always been happening really. It's just that it's been fed to you and through a very narrow filter. So what's happening is people, because people like clicks, likes and shares, those polemic issues are being amplified more than ever. So if you want to, there's a, there's a phrase within social media and uh, coding development, it's that angry people click more yeah. and angry people do click more and advertisers, marketing people know that. And, and it's like, it's not that they're angry, it's just that they can be triggered. So like you'd see, you know, the, in the recent adverts, I'm sure you've heard of Dylan Mulvaney. Yes. Oh, uh, look, I've, been, I've been covering um, what yeah. has happened there. Yeah. Yeah, so the advertisers know what they're doing when they choose mm. somebody like divisive or, or that's going to cause a lot of heat and light on social media because that's where the conversation happens now. I, I can look at that and go, gosh, that, that is intense what Dylan Mulvaney has put themselves through to, to be, you know, like I wouldn't say that I particularly like the style of Dylan Mulvaney or the way um, that that he uses himself, herself, sorry, as um, an advertising thing. I think that can be both destructive and can lead to, you know, because we, we've seen uh, the, the mental health of people decline who've been in those situations. So there's two, that, that was my initial thought about it. But then I thought, well, what the hell? You know, it's just a bit of fun, really, isn't it? You know, if people like, because this was coming through TikTok mainly. 
and I got into TikTok and even, you know, I, I'm quite open-minded and I, and I'm used to seeing a lot of drag stuff and things, but some of the things I was seeing on TikTok, I was because, because I've got a young nephew and I was thinking he was looking at it. I think, right. Um, he's going to be asking me questions about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I thought, mm. well, you know, I can answer them questions, but maybe, maybe younger people who don't have supportive parents or open family, you know, people who can chat to each other openly, which is a lot of families, you know, and people get shamed for being different. If they're in that environment, perhaps they would gravitate to something like that rather than talk to the families. And that could that that's what I think that's where the conversation gets muddied. Mm. So so you actually pulled up so many great little threads that I want to pull on. Yeah. That was quite a long... Uh... No, but it, it's good. So just to, to sort of round this out, so you've got your own podcast, so, so you yeah. discuss a lot of these issues from that different standpoint, and you've actually raised a number of the things that I've actually sort of looked at with some of the people that I've spoken to, and one of them was actually speed. You mentioned speed there in, in terms of how quickly things were. Now, I know yeah. a number of trans people, which I've known some for a very long time, and one of the things that they have often indicated to me, particularly those who transitioned decades ago, as opposed to those in the last decade, so in the last 10 years versus those in the last 20 or 30. And speed is actually one of the elements that they have brought up in the sense that when they went through their transition, it was a long process, a supportive process, both in physical and mental health. And it was one that was not undertaken quickly or without a large amount of reflection of is this the direction that we're wanting to go in so when mm -hmm. the decision was made and the journey embarked on there was a very very clear path for them in transition and mm. they are still happily living in their identities today however in recent years that's not quite been the case so what's your thoughts on that um so do you mean that there's been like a Things have sped up in the sense that more people are identifying as trans or... No, not more in terms of identification, but more identification and action. So another example is the house that I'm sitting in right now. I've purchased off a man who then transitioned to become a woman oh, in that okay. period of sale. And they went from coming out, identifying and having full surgical transition in a period mm. of less than a year. Mm, well, that's their personal choice. I mean, oh, ab absolutely. In, ter in terms absolutely. of, like, because I can always speak about the health system I know, which is the mm. NHS. Now, the NHS at the moment is broken. I mean, it, there are people on waiting lists to have all kinds of operations and things like that. And so, because unfortunately, trans comes under mental health. If you, when you come out, say you go to, if, when I went to my doctor several years ago and said, you know, I think I need some help. The first thing they do is send you to see a psychiatrist. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that because I don't feel like it's a psych like a psychiatric issue in the sense that I need to be profiled. But you have to go through quite a long process if you in, if you're going through the NHS. Now, if I was private and I could afford all the things, and but but being trans doesn't necessarily need a medical pathway. I, identifying as who you are, and and living as you know, the person you want to be is just a, it's, it's what you've always known, really. It's just when you have that confidence and there could be a trigger, there could be something that happens and then you feel like you can. Like when I, so for me, it was quite strange because my transition was very long because when I, I my mum 
always said that I was very feminine and all this stuff. And when I was little, I always got picked on for being girly and all this kind of stuff. Boys are quite cruel. They used to call me sissy and stuff like that. So that was always with me. But when I, when I was when I started college, um, I I started to transition a bit. But I think I was just being more androgynous because I was trying to fight this sort of puberty I was going through, which I found incongruous. But um, I did that, but because there's a lot of social pressure, and but honestly, the personal family reasons, I didn't transition. I kind of put it off, and it was only when I was like uh, about four or five years ago that I had a stable enough life where I felt like, yeah, I can do that. I can, I can be myself now because there's a lot of, you know, ups and downs. So that's my personal, I'm talking about myself there because I can only ever relate this to my experience because every trans person is going to have a different experience. So it's just, it just feels like, because it's very hard to define. And that's one of the problems a lot of people have because people will say, well, how do you know you're a woman? How do you know you're trans? How do you know you're not a boy? How do you know? But I, those were like, I don't know I'm a woman. I don't, I don't really know what, how to define that. I don't think that's a simple thing to define. I don't mm. walk into rooms and go, I'm a woman. I don't think any woman does. It's no. just uh, there's this word woman that exists. And it's like, I always say, you know, when, because that comes up a lot, that question of what is a woman? Well, that's a very, very deep question. That's a philosophical question. Now, you could say a woman is just an adult human female, which is a lot what a lot of the gender critical people will say. But within that phrase, adult human female, I think they miss the human bit quite a bit because we don't just who we are as human beings is is quite complex, isn't it? Because I always think about the way we relate to each other. It's not you, your identity just doesn't. It isn't just transmitted. It's also things you receive throughout your life. So you're affirmed in certain ways. I mean, I've got an older sister and I remember seeing the way her needs were met and how she was affirmed and how she was. And I, I preferred that. And I said to my mom, I want to be like my sister. And what I meant was I liked the way that her needs were met. Now, I can't really define that. I don't know how she feels about being a woman. I said to my sister, well, what does that feel like? But she doesn't know. I've asked my sister, what is a woman? Because she's not involved in this debate. She doesn't understand that there's this old debate going on about trans issues. She'll just say, well, I just feel like who I am. Mm. And that's enough. And that's that's it, really. So so when people try to define what trans is, I find that very difficult. Because trans really just comes out of medical language. It's mm. not really an identity in the same way people say cis, meaning not trans. Nobody, nobody says that in real life. They just see it. It just exists in scientific and medical text. So does the prefix trans. But trans is used more often because obviously we're the outlier. So it makes more sense to use that to define that difference. Mm. Oh, yeah. What was the question again? No, you haven't gone off on a tangent at all because I like the fact that you've actually brought it back to, mm. as you said, the human. The you, mm. the, the Frida. And yeah. she, it's interesting you say that. No one uses the term cis, but one of the questions I've written down here is do you feel that trans people within this cultural war have actually been used as a pawn in a much bigger game? In terms of the word of the use cis, the reason I ask this mm. is that I have seen politicians in this country who have been very negative towards those on the conservative side of the cultural war, uh, saying, oh, well, you're just a cis white male or a cis white female. Mm. And they're actually using that negatively against them and they themselves are mm -hmm. a cis. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. Do you have a dog in this fight? Yeah, I understand that because I have seen this thing where uh, politicians will be up on a podium and they're starting to be asked like, 
can women have penises? And I'm like, why the hell is this happening? You know, what what a ridiculous question to ask a politician. But the reason they do that is because it's a it's what you call a barometer issue. So you can tell somebody's character by the way they respond to something like that. Now, a politician should be saying, that's a stupid question, be quiet. But they can never do that because they'll think, oh, I can't offend trans people. I've got to say something vague and uh, that encompasses everybody. So, so yeah, I do think there is that trans, trans, trans people, not necessarily, but the trans issue is being used as a pawn because it can drag people over fences when, you, when you're asking for votes. So you'll see this kind of thing come up when they'll talk about, oh, you just can't say anything anymore. It's, you can offend anybody so easily. I just, you know, and it's like this free, it becomes like an issue around free speech then. And people get very nervous about that because I don't, I, me, me being who I am doesn't shut anybody's free speech down. But if, if you are somebody that it, it feels that you, it's, it, that, that, I'm trying to describe what it's like, but when people complain about not having free speech, I think it's in their conscience. I think it's in their mind because they, they genuinely don't want to offend anybody, but then they get very angry. The fact that, oh, somebody's telling me what to think, but nobody's really telling you what to think. It's just that life is sometimes more complicated than you first thought. So these things go, it's like you were saying about being men, uh, some people say, oh, you're a white cis male, but it's that idea of privilege. I don't know what it's like in New Zealand necessarily, but you've got like an indigenous culture and i think it feels sometimes like white women have more privilege than say a gay a lesbian which is probably true in a in a in a, a societal sense because you know you, you people have to fight for rights more but it doesn't mean that um privilege is just you're just born into it necessarily so it's it is complex that's why feminism is intersectional because like when you look at second wave feminism they recognized that the the women who were prominent voices got there because they were linked linked to politicians or they were linked to powerful men or they were linked to powerful institutions so the women that did get named and written about were there not just because of of uh, some achievement but it was made easier for them because of their social class now i think that that's what the same thing with any any minority group but i know trans women that are very well off you know like you said could just go and you know have all sorts of beauty treatments of uh, lip fillers of cheek implants of beautiful hair because they can afford to do that doesn't make them any more trans but it's the same for any woman i mean those aesthetics are not exclusive to being male or female because obviously um it's to do with privilege so say if I could afford it, yeah, I probably would, you know, where get my hair extensions done every every month and stuff like that. And but then I'm leaning into some idea of a woman. So that's why that's why I was saying a bit intersectional. So I think I've I have gone off on a bit of a tangent no. there. But, well then so my uh, thought on that, right, is that if you look at, and you brought up class, so you look up at those old traditional class systems, and I mean in the United Kingdom, those have been well and long established over you know centuries mm. now with uh if you look at it from a cultural war lens it's broken down from class into identities and power structures mm. yeah those who would like to move forward within that like to use that have gone and i think propelled trans people to um higher up that totem and i wonder so some that i speak to 
are not happy about that. They feel used. They feel like mm. that they, as that's why I bring the question of the porn, they feel that they have been used in a battle between those um, who uh, sit on the neo-Marxist, postmodernist side of the fence versus those that sit on the more conservative side of the fence. And, th- and that's yeah. not really useful for anybody. Well, that, that tells me that being trans isn't the cause or effect of anything or how people feel. So I know very conservative trans women and I know very what you call leftist, um, you know, uh, libertarian and whatever. The, trans people can exist on all those political spectrums. Being being trans doesn't necessarily. But what 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 I'd noticed about that was that um, say you know you you, you mentioned postmodernism there and like Marx, but that they are not re, that when you say that that's like the breakdown of uh, what what used to be very solid ideas of male and female that's not always been the case i mean it, I, I think it comes out of uh, mid 20th century like like i say I, I always think about this in a sense that in the post war period in america it was the housewife and that role was really heavily pushed because it was a post-war recovery strategy. So you had the Betty Crocker thing, you know, the whole thing about the woman being the industrious housewife and and what and and there's that famous poster with the you know um, the Riveter where she's like mm-hmm. that Rosie and that the Riveter be- that, and that disappears back into being the housewife and it's 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 almost all, all just after the war that happens. So so we're. When well, feminism was feminism grew out of that. What really? Yeah. Because that was those baby boomers that were born after yeah. the war yeah. that suddenly heard these stories of how strong and incredible their mothers were, and then all of a sudden they exactly, let that yeah. go and, and fell back into stereotypical roles. But those feminists of which I've, I've read uh, from that period, they trans wasn't really on their radar because it was always a, a fringe issue. Because it, it seems to be in recent years, it's become a bigger issue. And and then when I look at the history of it, because I've looked at drag and I've looked at the first sort of, you know, it, it, trans was kind of hidden. It wasn't like the like it is now. You had like transvestites, drag queens, what they would call street queens in America. You know that 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 was all part of a gay scene and a queer scene. But with the trans thing, I think that what I always think I I I, I notice as well because a lot of it seems to to have been under the radar for a long time. And now people are more open. People are more able to talk to each other online. I think the internet is a big, a big game changer because where people would have been just felt isolated and probably had, you know, if you have to go to the library to buy a book about, uh, to look at a book about something, you're probably not going to go. So <laughs> if, if um, you can just look something up online and you can meet like-minded people very quickly, then scenes grow. And I think that's, it's not that it's never, it's always been there, but it's just more visible. And that, that exponential change. And I think obviously with younger people, that, that worries people, especially parents who are quite conservative when they, they notice children, uh, you know, with the, this uh, children identifying as non-binary. I think that bothers people because that seems new. But I don't, I don't know if it is really. I just think people have always, there's always been people who are gender incongruent and kind of, androgynous it's just that it's got a different name now 
Well, and, and also too, a lot, a lot of that gets identified at a time through those teenage years. And I don't know about your 15-year-old self, but my 15-year-old self didn't know whether she was coming or going and up or, yeah. or down. So, you know, that is definitely yeah. a time where you're trying to figure a lot of stuff out. My, my attitude to that is, like, if, if, if I was a teacher or something like that and a child said to me, uh, I'm, I think I might be trans or I think I might be non-binary, I said, well, let's, let's read about it. You know, let's, I think the worst thing you can do with children is say, well, nah, forget about that. You, you, that's nothing. You know, you, you're making things up. I think that's not going to help anyone. That'll make them look for it in other places because children are generally naturally curious. So, um. Because, I, I mean, I, I do a bit of work with a charity in Manchester, the LGBT Foundation. There's quite a lot of younger people go there. And I feel really old. I feel like I'm, I'm 40. odd now, I'm going to tell you exactly. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm in my 50s, darling. So, you know, you're <laughs> I feel really old. I feel really old and out of touch. Because I get told off by them for saying the wrong thing. And because, because uh, you know, I get the he, she thing wrong quite a lot. And it's not because I'm being rude. It's just because I, I, you know, and, and, and some of them will say, oh, I'm they. Which is fine. I'm not a problem with that. But I feel like... Um, I, I'm happy to be called out, though. I like it when they have that confidence to say, because if somebody has the confidence to do that, I think that's to be respected. And um, but I don't think it's anything new. I just think it's more visible now because, mm. like I said, it's like if, you, if you've spent enough time on Twitter, you're probably going to encounter things that you find incongruent or annoying or whatever it is. But there's a... Um, there's this thing on Twitter where if you start to argue with people, it'll start showing you more things you don't like. <laughs> so that's how the algorithm works. And it's like that. It's the same on Instagram. It's the same on Facebook and all those things. But that goes back to your angry clicks. Yeah. So so there's this yeah. there's this there's this really angry bubble of things going on. And and it, it, it yeah, I do find myself in the crossfire of it, mm. but I don't think I don't think it's new. I just think it's more visible. I just think it's more and people, when people, when people feel like I, I, I often say to people who are getting angry on the internet, I said, you know what? Not everything in the world is for you. It's like mm -hmm. shouting at the telly because you don't like the program. Turn it off. <laughs> Put something well, else on. So, you know? see, I find that really refreshing to hear from you because if you were somebody, because of course I just I speak to a lot of people that sit on the more conservative side of defence, and there is that argument of they don't allow me to be me and them to be them. Well, you've just literally said that. I've always been very much of the opinion, if I don't like something, I've had to dive back into Twitter for mm. this job. But if I don't like something, I'm like, oh, you would whatever. I scroll on. I'm very big with the scrolly on, but a lot of yeah. people get stuck on that and they won't do that. And they get caught up in I this cycle. I think it's quite addictive, though. I think, I think people like to be angry. It's not that they like to be angry. It's like There's a sort of endorphin rush in yeah. it. Because I do the same thing. I found myself arguing with people for hours. It's not that I'm trying to be nasty. It's just I enjoy it. I enjoy. I have this theory. I don't know if it's. A, it's just like when you're arguing with somebody online, you're actually arguing with yourself in a mirror, because you you you're trying to flesh out your own argument. Because because this person's anonymous. You've never met them. You don't know who they are. And it feels like you're 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 actually having the argument with yourself. So you don't like your doubting self and you you also like your ego so though your doubting self and your ego are having a fight over the internet with with and using somebody as that as that uh, lightning rod so that's why people who are trans follow anti-trans people and that's why people who are anti-trans follow me because they they want to 
they want to flesh out that idea. But obviously some people are just nasty and abusive. So most of the time I just block those mostly men actually. And then they come into my DMs asking me if, you know, I send them some pictures, but that's another story. But, um, there's a, and there is a sexual dimension to that. It's like, like when they, when you argue and especially when I'm arguing with a guy and he lasts, it, it gets quite personal. And I'm thinking, gosh, I feel like I've, is he, is he trying to like come on to me or what? <laughs> you know, it feels a bit like that, you know? So, and I, and that has happened where, where I've just had to pull myself back from and cause, cause there's, nobody's going to win. Nobody's going to turn around and go, do you know what? I think you were right after all. <laughs> It's not going to happen. So you're just going to end up in a click hole. Yeah. So. And see, because I've written here just one of the, it's just a statement. I've just written conciliatory versus confrontational. And and it's almost like that we've gotten into the spiral. And unfortunately, yeah. social media is mm. uh, not very good for the conciliatory. Oh, and it's very, very no. confrontational. I mean, a lot of people I speak to have uh, actually moved themselves off social media altogether especially twitter or x i know it's changed its name now i keep forgetting to call because twitter's had a transition <laughs> we have to respect its new name <laughs> and i never do but um yes x and and i think it's become more and more toxic because um like i said the the value of it depends on people interacting with it so you get people going and a lot of the big accounts on there like um the big I would say um, the people that have made money out of being anti-trans, I'm not going to mention anybody's name, but there are people that have got quite a big following. And I think it's all to do with a kind of circus act, really. Do you remember the American guy, Alex Jones? Yeah, yeah I, used to, I, used to, I used to watch him because it was, I didn't necessarily, I just found it really entertaining. And I just like that. that's why I go in for that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, I, it was just quite funny to watch him, but it, it, I mean, he's an he's a very extreme example of what I'm talking about. But mm. there are there are when people follow um, what I would call culture war uh, polemics or polemicists, it's because they do get some endorphin rush from arguing with it, and and I think that's what's happened. And there are serious journalists on there, obviously. That see, I do follow a lot of journalism and a lot of writers who you know, in the UK, you were sort of on the fringes now. Everything seems very, like the Daily Mail, everything feels like that now. Like everything's a bit mm. of a sensationalist thing. So, I mean, I don't know if that it, answers your question. No, no, it's, no <laughs> but, it's because because obviously, I mean, I come from, from a cultural war perspective, and mm. I've said this before, you know, I, I the only reason I got dragged into this is that literally someone came in and shat in my nest. Mm. Mm. And because up until that point, I was living my life and, and running my businesses and doing what I do every day. For me, the culture war stuff felt that was over there. Mm. And I didn't feel that I had a dog on the fire. I mean, I'm all about being, I'm all about the individual and being respectful for the person. And so from my perspective, I really, I brought everyone together in the basis of crap. So I didn't care how you identified, how you lead, led your life, what colour you were. If you wanted to turn up and uh, turn string into something really fabulous using pointy sticks, <laughs> I'm yeah. your gal. And yeah. when someone said to me, no, you can't do that, knitting is political, mm. and it got very nasty very quickly, I tolerated it for a while. And so for why, me, was, why, is, why is knitting political? 
(laughs) That's a whole nother podcast for a whole nother day. But um, there was that shift and you probably felt it in the the culture yourself. It was sort of around that, what I call that Brexity Trumpy time. You know, there, there was that really sort of, it's almost like a ripple in the force within Mm. the culture at that time. And all of a sudden, what you believed or what side you were on politically all of a sudden mattered about it spilled over into other parts of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I was completely androgynous about all of those issues. I mean, I couldn't Mm. understand why a Brexit or a Trump issue should affect me as an utter in New Zealand. Mm. But anyway, it's not about me, darling. It's about you. How did you find that time? Well, I remember that... There's always been um, it, with, within British politics a kind of insecure idea of what Britain is. Like this, the, Brit, Brit, England, especially within itself, uh, as part of the UK, has a problem with its identity. And people that fly the flag, I think for a long time they were made to feel, well, no, don't fly the flag. It's embarrassing. You know, it, you don't need to celebrate. You know, and the reason for that was because Britain's a colony. You know, it's it pretty much took over most of the bloody world. Well, that's the reason New Zealand is New Zealand is because of the British Empire. So there was this kind of like, oh, well, we don't need to stand with waving with flags. But increasingly, I don't know why, but Britain got very insecure about its identity. And it, maybe it always has been under the surface, but people that were very what we would call right wing started to get louder and we had the you know i'm sure you've heard of nigel farage Mm -hmm. and 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 they became important to the people because they were saying something that the other politicians were not because they were speaking to that primal idea of a british identity now i don't know why it happened quite at the time it did but the, the brexit vote was like the the confluence of a lot of issues and this is where it comes back to the trans thing because for when when the people that were pushing for Brexit, I don't think they thought the British public were actually going to leave the European Union. I just don't think because they didn't have a plan. They didn't know what was going to happen. They just knew. And they were sending out these messages like make Britain, it wasn't make Britain great again or anything, but I think it was something like, oh, build back better. Or they had all these phrases. I'm trying to think of what the one was now. It was like um, similar phrases to that where they were very simple and they were uh, take back control. That was it. So take back control. They thought the British people, I thought that, I think that they meant that was their whole lives, take back control of our lives. And it became an emigration issue. Now, even that there's more emigration now in the UK than there was at the time of Brexit. So there's nothing's changed there. And, but the reason trans issues became involved in that is because to, for Boris Johnson to get a lot of his Brexit um, things over the line. He had to get people in the government who were who would who would basically just agree with everything he said, and that made that makes for a very right wing government. And the people that are in power now are still we're still in the sort of hangover of that time. So they, they they're actively going into the media now and and making these divisive because because they, they knew they could do it with Brexit. They knew they could. Uh, divide people quite easily through lobbying uh, on immigration, like this, these invasion narratives, and and they do that with the trans issue. It's it's almost identical the way it works. So you'll have you've got lobby groups in in the UK like Sex Matters that say they campaign for the um, 
you know, the, the definition of sex. So, so it's not gender, it's sex. But really, it, 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 it doesn't matter if you call it sex or gender or what. People are just going to be who they are. But the way they work is they, they have a set, like I, I call it a repertoire of arguments. So they'll use trans, trans prisoners, trans women in prison, trans women in sports, trans women in single sex spaces and all these things, which are all, you know, we can all say we can have a debate about those issues, but they make it feel to people like there's this invading force, this, this threat, which there isn't, there's no threat. You know, it's the, the, there's, it's no, there's not even a big issue. It never was before. It won't be again. It's just become like this because there's a lot of money sloshing around for lobby groups. And that's what, that's part of my research. So then that's the interest. Okay. So let's tease that out a little bit. The money sloshing around from, for lobby groups. Uh, there appears to be a lot of money sloshing around on both sides. So if there's a lot of money sloshing around, what is the benefit? Who, who benefits from that money and why well, would they spend that money to begin with? Well, the, there isn't a lot of money on both sides. The, the money is tends to come from uh, people that have vested interest in, you know, getting their getting their party or whatever they want voted for. So, they like in in Scotland recently, you had the vote on gender self ID, gender recognition. So, what that would do. Is it would make it would it would remove the medical pathway which I talked about before. So I say now at the moment I have to go to a doctor, and I have to be under the doctor for two years before they would consider me for any medication or hormone treatment or anything like that. With self ID, you just identify, and that's it. You don't need to go down a medical pathway to to be to have a gender recognition certificate. So that's the difference, and people find that threatening because it they think it changes, you know how it doesn't really change anything it does it, it it's like a perceptive change of gender being fluid which it is anyway but they the way they the way that they um influence that vote is by going into the media with these stories about trans rapists trans killers trans murderers anything to do with trans that's negative and it just gets pushed into the media all the time there's a there's a group called the free speech union and they do a lot of these, uh, they fund vexatious court cases that say, like Mayor Forstarter's case. I don't think they funded that, but it was this idea that somebody was sacked from their job for saying that sex is real. That's nobody been, nobody's ever been sacked from a job for saying sex is real. Nobody's ever been sacked from a job for saying that um, trans women are men or whatever. What, what happens is these cases are, get promoted into the media so it becomes a story so it's like oh um there's a, there's a problem that there needs to be solved but there, is, there really isn't you know that's that's just a bit of a myth <laughs> so uh what what i've looked at is that there's there's a there's another group called the lgb alliance and they try to say that they care about the rights of lesbian gay bisexual and they don't think trans is part of that, but they don't actually do anything for the lesbian and gay bisexual community. They just exist to exclude trans people. And they'll they'll do the same thing where they'll get themselves into the media to talk about trans people as if they're a problem. And it just goes on like that, you know, to, to sway that vote, to stop progression, you know, of, of human rights, basically. So how That's, do you fix it? I, well, I don't know. I mean, it, that comes down to... How people are educated but I've, I've tried to fix it myself by going into the media that's why i do this you know i've, I've been on uh, talk tv in, in the uk and gb news 
And I just try and get in the way of that conversation because 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 obviously sometimes they'll ring me up and say we're talking about um, they'll say children identifying as trans in school. So I know the subject they really want to talk about is bogus. There's probably been no issue. There's probably not even been a single child to make that story. But so well, so I just go and say, why are you talking about this now? Who does it benefit? You know, what is the reason? you're actually talking about this and it's because they there'll be a lobby group behind that story that's funded it into the daily mail or something like that so that's i'm just there to challenge that um but i don't have i mean uh, i think i don't know if it's like it's too simplistic to say it's certain groups or it's certain people it's just that i think society leans this way and that it might lean more right wing sometimes and more left wing other times and it might benefit more people to pursue a more right-wing agenda sometimes and a more left-wing agenda at others. There's no, like, game to be won. It's just like the culture breeds in and out. And, you know, we hope that society becomes more inclusive and more understanding of people that are different because it's never, you know, I, I, I don't really care about whether people think I'm a man or a woman or not. I don't really care if people understand that I'm trans. What I care about is young people being spat on on public transport for looking different that shouldn't be happening and when you and if you promote a certain idea into the media that trans people are a problem then that's going to happen people are going to get hurt now there's always going to be people in society that don't like us they just don't accept trans people just don't like it that's fine you, you don't have to like everything but what i don't like is when other people try and convince others that we are a problem and they spend money to try and convince others that we're a problem. That's dangerous because they won't stop there. It's incremental because if you're tolerant of intolerant of me, the chances are you'll be intolerant of another type of person. So when, I mean, a few years back, it was all about gay marriage and people talked a lot about that. And there were debates in parliament. It was all the papers. It's a, you know, it's, it's all about the sanctity of marriage and all this, and it ruins the institution. And we had all these debates and it's the same thing now, but that the, the gay marriage thing got over the line. So it's like, well, did it affect anybody? Is anybody bothered? No, people just got on with their lives. And um, so, yeah, I've noticed these um, subjects coming into the papers because you'll get, I, so I, my mom gets the Daily Mail. So my mom's 85. So she's a certain generation. So I look at the paper where they're like, oh God, they're all, go they're going on about pronouns again. And I, and I think it's really funny because she'll say, oh, well, you, somebody got in trouble for saying the wrong pronouns. And no, no, they didn't. It's just, it's just a daft story. But it's like, it, People do respect people. If if some like when I go when I go shopping when I'm in my daily life, I just get on with people. Do you know what I mean? I'm not I'm not there to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But um, I've had people say to me, you know, when I've been out, and they they genuinely are curious. If somebody asks me about how it feels being trans, like when I've been at work and I've had conversations with people at work, people are just generally. If it's good faith, if somebody wants to ask me what so, it feels like. So you've just identified an observation that I've had. And my observation is, is that it's not the, the trans person that's the issue. It's the trans ally. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, of overzealous allies? Mm, yeah, you do get that. People do try and, I, I think, I think the, pro, the thing with that is I always find that when somebody is like that, it's because they know somebody who's trans and they've seen them upset and they've seen them hurting and they think, I've got to do something about that. But really, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> you know, you're not going to change anybody's mind by 
you know, wading into uh, debates. But I think, I mean, that's that's a very online thing I noticed. Because, um, like, when I've 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 looked, I'm in my in my writing, I do a blog and I go to trans pride marches, but I also go to marches on the other side of that spectrum. Like I've been to Posey Parker, Kelly J. Keene's meetings and stood on the peripheries and done my little protests, but I've actually spoken to people that go to those things. And they just, they just feel like they're part of a little club. I don't know if it like, cause I was in a pub with some of them in Dublin and it felt to me like, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but you know, if, you, if you're in a pub and, and there's a football game, but you're wearing the wrong colours. <laughs> That's what it felt like. I felt like that was it really. But as you said, you were able to have a conversation and you were there. So I spoke to somebody um, a couple of weeks ago who is one of my regulars and she is someone that has really concerns about gender critical uh, education in schools and from what mm -hmm. she's seeing. Now, bearing in mind that we are coming from a position that we've had a very, very progressive government here in the last six years. Mm -hmm. So everything that you've spoken about that in your observations in the UK, you, we've got the inverse going on here. Okay, right, right. But the mechanisms, it's, I'm interested in the mechanisms. So... She was uh, was at a rally, a local um, Māori rally, actually, and it was called Mana Wahine Kōrero, was doing, which means stand up for women in Māori. And so these were Māori women who had arranged a meeting in the outside parliament, and there were trans people on the fringes. And the, this woman, she said one of the things that she enjoyed the most was the ability to be able to go over to them and chat to them. And she said, and this mm. is what's missing. She said, this is mm. what's missing is that ability to be able to talk one-on-one -on -one and actually have a really, really good conversation about stuff mm. and actually work on the commonalities and not the differences. Mm. Yeah, but there is a divide. It's very real. And I don't agree. I mean, it's okay to say, yeah, everybody sing Kumbaya. Like, it's not, that's not going to happen for some people. They're, they're, they're radicalised. There are people that are genuinely radicalised into a... The, the uh, what we'll call a gender critical, just to call it that. I mean, I don't particularly think it's gender critical, but they call it that. Um, there are people in that movement who would genuinely think that there are trans people trying to turn their children trans. They genuinely think that trans people are sexual predators because I get that on social media. I've been called that by quite prominent people, quite, people who are quite well known in that movement. Now, the reason they do that is because it's the simplest way to demonize somebody. Because if you, that's the worst thing somebody could possibly be, isn't it? A sexual predator. So that is repeated. The word groomer comes up a lot. And that is that is almost on, on social media now, it's it's almost casually spoken. Now that wouldn't have happened a few years ago, but it did happen to gay men, it did happen to drag queens, it did happen to that culture a few years ago. But it's happening to trans people now because they see us as part of that same thing. Not everybody who says they're gender critical are that abusive, but it's an incremental scale. And I think some people are very easily radicalized. Now, for some of them, it might be a sense of belonging to something because I noticed that during the COVID period, there were people being radicalized into groups against uh, the government in, in various ways and I think once that passed there was still that energy it still existed so it was like oh the 
you know, they didn't trust government and they didn't trust a lot of, because there was a lot of nonsense around COVID. There was a lot, a lot of rubbish, a lot. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. It, it destroyed confidence in power and government. And also added to that, you had that medicalization um, threat and, and fear. So, so, and that is part of being trans, you know, you go down this medical pathway. So people have come, come, confused those two things to think that there's a gov the government is turning people trans like the government want people to be trans in a way to sort of destabilize society which is absolutely insane but they actually do believe that they actually do believe that there are lobby groups that exist to promote trans identity they call it trans ideology and they think that's real they think that the government and that certain people in power trying to turn men into women because they, they want to feminize or, or demasculate society now that is a that sounds absolutely insane to me that somebody would believe that but i can i can understand why somebody might believe that because i can see the incremental changes that have happened over the last few years due to covid and we mentioned brexit and the destabilization in geopolitics these old things come together to create like a perfect storm and unfortunately trans people have become the one of the focal points of it because we we when we put questions in people's minds about fundamentals about what it means to be a man or a woman is it's very fundamental to what we are as human beings so if people start to question that or perhaps they've always always questioned it, but because I'm very visibly questioning it, it, it seems threatening. And uh, I, I, it's obviously that some people react very aggressively to that. And and if we if we react aggressively back, it's like confirming everything they thought. Say, so, oh, this, these trans trans rights activists, they want to destroy our lives. You know, and it's, it becomes real. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, it's pretty no, scary. No, so you, well, it is because in this country, of course, in March, we had exactly that. Mm. So we had Kelly J. King come and speak, and I will be the first to admit she can be very divisive. Yeah. But the reaction, and also to hear the media coverage of that reaction, Mm -hmm. So we had a media that were largely saying, oh, no, it was a day of the counter protest was a day of trans joy and it was mostly peaceful and the like. Whereas the footage told a completely different story. Mm -hmm. You've got to be careful with footage. I mean, footage can be made to make, you know, I, what I will say about that, because I interviewed Ali Rabushkin. I'm sure you know who Ali Rabushkin mm -hmm. is. And she has... You know, I don't, I, first of all, I don't condone throwing soup on people or juice, whatever it was. I don't condone that. But if you're somebody like Kelly J. Keene, who's willing to travel 15,000 miles to set up a rally, she can't control. She doesn't have the security for 2,000 people turn up. If I was her, I'd call it off. We well, shouldn't so, call it. So here's the thing. Yeah, there's, but there's, so I've, because of course I've interviewed people on the other side of that fence. I mean, that rally was set up and designed to fail. So yeah. it was set yeah. up. Well, she, everywhere and, and, everywhere and, Kelly goes, she fails. Well, but I don't actually sit that on, on her shoulders. It was set up and designed to fail by a number of people involved in that, including the New Zealand police, and we have OIAs to yeah. back that up. Well, you, you probably um, know more about that than yeah, me. Yeah, so, but, what, but the thing is, is it's what we you were just talking about. It's those optics, and so those optics 
for a normie. And what I discovered is that I mm. had normies who were completely people just the go along to get alongs who if they were to meet you out at the supermarket or the pub, you know, mm-hmm. good day, Frida. Oh, what's your name, Frida? Nice to meet you, Frida. What do you do? Oh, I, I don't know what you do for a day job. I do blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, blah. Yeah. Have, have you caught up with this? Or, you know, what's the weather doing? They wouldn't, there would be no, they wouldn't be looking at Frida, the trans woman, Frida, the activist, Frida, the writer, Frida. They'd just be looking at Frida. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that event, that nexus, woke a lot of those people up. And then, they were forced to look at something that really they could just yeah. still continue to ignore. But then they yeah, well, were saying, well, that, is this, you know, it's, it's crea- it created a poor optic. Yeah, I think it's good that they can't ignore it. I think there is something there that is worth examining. But what I what I saw happen, because I followed, I follow um, like the anti-trans stuff because I write about it. And Kelly J. Keene had been, or Posey Parker had been in Melbourne and, I think it was Melbourne where there were very extreme right-wing neo-Nazis turned out. And they tried to deny that they'd come for that, but they had a sign that said, destroy pedo freaks. Now, like I said before, one of the main um, things that they attack trans people with and gay people and drag queens is the calls groomers and pedophiles and sexual predators. Now, to see that on the streets of Melbourne is shocking. And, the, and, it's, and it happened because... And I don't know if it was directly because or there was something else going on, but it, it was just too coincidental for, to, for you to divorce that from Kelly uh, Posey Parker's meeting in there. So by the time she gets to New Zealand, that news has reached all the anti-fascist people. Well, and, so and New, Zealand, it, it, New, Ze- New Zealand has had, you know, we had the... You know, was there, was, there's a shooting at a mosque. I can't remember the exact date of that, but March fifteen. Yeah, and that, that there is a there is a very right wing sentiment, and and that I don't yes, know. Where but, it comes so from. okay, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Firstly, okay. uh, El Nor Mosque. It was an Australian that came over and did that. So it wasn't right. no, New no, Zealand. No, I was, I was, um, yeah. Secondly, on that is that the New Zealand. I mean, I'm quite critical of how the New Zealand media portrayed Kelly J. Keane before she came to New Zealand. Now, again, I'm I'm actually very ambivalent on her. I find her actually a little bit too abrasive for me personally. Uh, so, I mean, I'm neither there nor here nor there as far as she's concerned. But mm. what I was very observant on was how the media, in this country especially, mm-hmm. they, for me, were actually part of the problem in terms of the violence. They, they set up the premise for that mm. violence in Albert Park in March. They I very think... much laid, laid it laid it down because ultimately when it comes to a protest, you can't stop other groups hitching their wagon to your um to your your cart, right? They you can't do that. I mean, on mm. the on the converse, you couldn't help it if you had other radical activists at a pro-trans rally that you actually that Push that like if someone all wearing black and Antifa turned up with black umbrellas and face masks and were there pushing their barrow when you're there trying to actually mm. have a positive pro trans march, you can't stop mm. them turning up and doing that. And it's the same with those neo Nazis. But mm-hmm. the media have that full confluence and they, and for them, they're doing it because they're wanting the clicks, aren't they? They're doing it because they're wanting the clicks, well, they're wanting the viewership. And and the people about it that are becoming the pawns in their game. 
Yeah, that's true about the clicks again. But but I think what what they were reporting was basically what happened. Like in in the UK, any reporting of Posey Parker had been very biased. I mean, she only she only seemed to appear on what I would call right wing networks. So. Uh, GB News, Talk TV, and she never was never challenged. She's there to just set out her stall. She's not there to be challenged because I was supposed to be on a show with her once and she declined because she knew I was going to be there. So she doesn't want to be challenged ever. So when I saw the news in Australia, I thought this is refreshing because what they're actually doing is saying what I've been saying because it's not, it wasn't a one instance, it wasn't a one off that neo Nazis turned up. I've been looking at the people that follow her. And I've been looking at the groups that had been interested in a movement, and they're not a libertarian movement. They're a very narrow kind of authoritarian movement. And I think women are being recruited into I would call what I would call authoritarian ideas because it's that she says she's standing for women, but she's not a feminist. She's not followed by feminist women who who understand systemic, institutional, and structural misogyny. Because there's no challenge to that. That's why she's on these media programs in the UK, because she doesn't challenge any any of those uh, systems. She just upholds them in a way. Mm. So when I saw the news in Australia, I thought, this is interesting, because this is the first time she's being challenged. This is the first time that media is actually reporting what actually happened. Now, she couldn't handle it, because when, when what happened in Albert Park was like, the apotheosis really of everything that she'd been on that tour and it had built up. She'd been all around the world. She'd been to America. She'd been all the way around the UK. She goes around mainly it's, it seems to be like a colonial tour. She'll go to, you know, Australia, New Zealand, America. And, and uh, there are far right groups that support her. We, they had the proud boys in America would turn out for her. And in Australia, you had the neo-Nazis. Yeah, I can definitely say that that was not the case in Albert Park. I mean, in Albert Park, that group were outnumbered dramatically. Mm. Oh, yeah, because that, that, was, that was a level of anger that those trans people and trans allies and people that support libertarian and freedom, and that's that's what they support. They don't want a lady coming all that way from England to shout that she doesn't, because she doesn't, she's... I've watched her, uh, her um, rallies. She'll shout things like women don't have penises repeatedly and she'll get people to stand up and talk about groomers and paedophiles and link trans people to that. That's what they do. That's that's how, that's how there's no positive message. There's no prizes for women at the end of that. All it is is this constant, you know, negative energy towards LGBTQ, anything like that. It, it just, that's it. That's all I can see. So when I saw the... Australian press and then the New Zealand press actually reporting correctly. I think that was that's mm. what they did. You know, now you could say that they inf inflamed tensions, but the tension was already there. I think, and and what with, with and what happened with Ali Rabushkin, that for her that was like, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about Ali, but she is she was a refugee, you know, she was made stateless and she didn't have an identity and it was only New Zealand that would let her in because she had no gender on a certificate. She had no paperwork and she was, I think she identifies it intersexed. So she, she thought this was a direct threat to her, you know, life almost. I know it sounds cat like I'm catastrophizing, but for somebody like Ali, that's, and uh, like I said, I don't endorse what she did. I don't think it was a wise move. 
but I think it happened because it was the culmination of a lot of things that have been building up and she and Posey Parker invites that she did she she part of her work is about the the counter protest because it it's they could she can then say well, look at these trans rights activists who want to shut me down that's part of it it's agitating the left that's always happened so um while, while it's true that I could, you could say that the press did agitate but i think they actually told the truth about what was going on and uh, now if 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 posey parker has any positive message or anything i think she 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 definitely speaks to something about the way women feel about their identities but it's not trans people's fault you know we we didn't do that that's a misogyny that's a societal problem and rather than work it out because i mean obviously posey parker has a deep pathological repulsion to trans women that's all i can sense from that and i don't know why but that's how she feels mm. like, nobody's ever going to change that no. So then it comes back to allowing people to work it out and make up their own minds. So, which is why I wanted to have you on so we could have a conversation like this. You know, it's good to be able mm. to sort of flesh things out. Now, I, I haven't, I mean, I don't agree with everything that you have to say, but nor do I need to. I love the fact that we can talk about it and we can, you know, you've given me some food for thought and things that I want to, you know, look into further. And um, I'm certainly going to be listening to some of your podcasts. It's, you know, that, that will fascinate okay. me greatly. Um, so, I'm to on the one with Ali. And that's yeah, yeah def- that was exactly the one in mind. So for our listeners, and they're thinking, okay, Rita sparked something now. I want to, to go off and do a bit of investigation. Where did they find your content, Frida? Well, if you go on to gendernebulous.co.uk, that's my where uh, I do the uh, podcast with my friend Vicky Hodges. And that's where, mo- that's where all the podcasts are. And there's some other media stuff on there and our links to our personal pages. And I'm on Twitter. As uh, Miss Frida Wallace, so there you go. But take, uh, I just, I've got to say, take what I say on Twitter with a pinch of salt because I'm a bit of a comedian on there. I do like to wind people up. And uh, are you a bit spicy on the X? Yeah, I am. Yeah, <laughs> but I, 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 I um, I get in trouble. I, I, I post kind of burlesque kind of fetish content as well. So, um, I just warn you, <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing extreme, but you know. See, that's another conversation for another day. Hey, look, Frida, I really do appreciate you um, giving some time your in your evening and my morning this morning. It has been um, really enlightening. And thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. And remember, if you've got any feedback that you want or questions you want to ask about this morning's interview, info at realitycheck.radio is the email and 2057 is the text number. Thanks very much, Frida. I do very much appreciate it. I appreciate Frida taking the time to talk to me this morning. It's always good to hear another perspective. And as Frida said, she speaks from her experience. Frida isn't the first trans woman I've interviewed. Several months ago, I spoke with Catherine Truscott. Her experiences differ in many ways from Frida's. So I thought I'd replay our chat so you could all compare and contrast with the two points of view. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. You're with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and joining me now is Catherine who reached out to us several weeks ago through inbox at realitycheck.radio and she has a very interesting story to tell. And good morning, Catherine. How are you? 
Oh, good morning. Yeah, um, I'm well. You reached out to us and let us know why yeah. you contacted us. Well, with all this woke stuff going around and all these so-called trans people jumping up and down and what triggered it basically was the disgusting way that um, Posey Parker got treated. That was just appalling. I just need people to know that in my informed, slightly informed opinion, these people are suffering from a social contagion. This shouldn't be happening. The problem is that it's it's become a self-generating thing in our universities and schools and spreading and it alarms me. People do need to know that there is a condition called transsexualism and it's of genetic biological origin. Every fetus, when it's formed, if it has a Y chromosome, it has the potential to be male. The default condition is female. If nothing happens to it, you get an XY person born with a completely functional female body. Often they don't find out unless they have a karyotype test. In my case, it was only partial. I did have some physical abnormalities, but they weren't particularly gross. The worst one was one you couldn't see, which was in the head, in the brain. I was just wired to be a girl. We're just going to back up a little bit for our listeners. So this is your unique perspective because you are somebody who is genuinely wired to be a female. But Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so walk us through how that started for you. Well, gosh, it's a long story. Um, <laughs> looking back on it, I was a quite strange little boy, I guess. I tended to keep to myself and I always got along with girls much better than boys for some reason until puberty hit, which was a total nightmare, of course. It is for people like us because we always hope that it'll somehow come right, but it doesn't, of course, you know. So you do what society wants you to do and you do the best you can as you do if you... I mean, I was lucky. I had a very, very happy and loving home I grew up in. So... I didn't have the trauma that I know some people like me that I know have been through with parents that um, were very intolerant of any deviation from what they saw as strict maleness, you know. I was allowed to pretty much do what I liked, you know, so I could iron and sew and uh, I tried to teach myself to knit, but I wasn't very good at that. (laughs) I also did, did guy things as well because all my peer group did, you know. You get along as best you can. I mean, I grew up in the 1940s and 50s in post-war Britain, and it was a fairly constrained society in that sort of way. I did wonder at one point if I might be gay, but I'm not really, because one's sexual orientation seems quite an independent thing from your actual self-identity. It seems to me to be that way, because it's so hard to look back on it, because... You know, how do you remember how you felt in that abstract sort of way, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago? It's it's hard to say. I got through life. I actually, I was married for quite a long time. I have three children and that eventually um, didn't work. I don't think I was ideal husband and father material by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway, once I had no dependence, you know, um, my children were grown and, and had you know, were completely independent and had lives of their own, I was able to sort of look to myself and and find out if the feelings that I had had any real foundation. In fact, you know, one does a little research, talk to your doctor, go and see a psychologist, make sure I'm not nutty. (laughs) (laughs) And And I found out, I discovered much to my delight, that there is actually a reason I felt the way that I did, and that's 
a limited something could be done about it. I've got the same gender that I was born with. I haven't changed my gender. Nobody can change their gender. So the concept is ridiculous. Um, I've got the gender that I was born with. All I've done is make my old body fit it a bit better. And that makes me much more comfortable every day. That must have been a tremendous relief to find that out, Catherine. It was actually because I, I felt I felt alone. I always felt that I was sort of outside of life, looking in on it. If you know what I mean, I always felt sort of isolated. I was never able to really contact with people on on an emotional level like I can now. I'm closer to at least well, two of my children anyway. I'm closer to them now than I've ever been because they know who I am and so do I, and that's cool. You know, and just bless them because it must have been very hard for them. I'm not sure how I'd have handled it if my father had done what I did. I'm not sure I'd have handled that at all well. So, you know, the, the, the condition actually springs from, you know, way before you're born. It's the fact that, you know, my, my zygote was not, well, it had androgens delivered, but the genes that control your sensitivity to androgens in the womb are on your X chromosome, and everyone has one of those. And mine are lazy and they didn't respond properly to it. So I had some genital abnormalities and I had this girl-wired brain when I was born. Um, But the genital abnormalities were very small and were obviously not remarked upon, but they were there. You know, quite often it goes as far as a condition called hyperspadia, which, you know, usually needs surgery to correct it. But, you know, I wasn't that bad and everything seemed to work. And uh, as I say, this was 1942. (laughs) Different world then, you know. Oh, and how old were you when uh, you sort of went through your transition? I was, I started it about 24 years ago. Yeah, quite late in life, you know. I sort of waited till I had no other entanglements with people because I knew that it would be a difficult thing. And if I was in any kind of relationship with anybody, um, it would be devastating for them. So, and I didn't know what could be done. You know, um, how much it would cost. Yeah, so, <laughs> you so have to you... wait till you're in a, a social and psychological and financial position to be able to do something about it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and that's incredibly selfless of you as well. You know, to consider all those other factors. Well, having children is is a it's a contract. I was taught on my mother's knee that your word is your bond. It, doesn't matter if it's on a document or if you signed it or not. If you give your word, you keep it. I took my vows very, very seriously. So, you know, you fulfil those before you do something for yourself. Mm. That's just just the way I was raised. I guess I had wonderful parents. <laughs> um, just the kind of person I am, I suppose. I've, I've always thought that, you know, one's personal integrity is one of the most important things in life, you know. The thing that seems to be lacking so often now is is honour and integrity. What happened to it? It's gone the way of those daily social protocols like please and thank you and let me hold that door for you and all the other little things that are the, the grease on civilization's axle. You know, what, what's happened to everybody? I certainly can agree with that. I mean, good manners can get you a very long way. This woke thing that's going on, you know, with all these ridiculous pronouns. You know, all I can say is these people, the vast majority of them, I'm sure among them are are a few people like me who are wandering around in bewildered circles wondering which way is up. Look, we have statistics about this. About one in 30,000 people are like me, male to female transsexuals. So in New Zealand, there should be 
around about 170 of us, my mental arithmetic tells me. Um, some, of course, will be babies. Some, of course, will be old people. So there'll be even less than that in the middle. Where are all these hundreds, thousands of people claiming to be trans of some sort coming from? And I think they're the victim of a social contagion where you can suddenly be special by claiming to want to be the other gender. I believe in America, in some schools, 10% of the children have said they want to be the other gender. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, there's going to be some very unhappy young people when they find out what they've done to themselves and it can't be undone. And, and you know, I, I only know two people that managed to learn the right narrative and talk their way through the old filters that we had 20 years ago that everybody demanded be dispensed with. And both of them are dead from suicide. Neither of them, as far as I know, had any surgery. They'd just been on hormones for a few years and then tried to knock it off and they just fell apart. Mm. And it was dreadful. It was dreadful. You know, poor guys, they, they just got this thing in their head and they managed to tell the right lies to all the people and, and get through the system. But um, And I know a few people that got rejected by the system, you know, got very irate about it. But as I said at the time, if I have a delusion, I want to find out about it and get it fixed before I do anything permanent, like getting my plumbing rearranged, you know. So where's people's rational thinking, their objectivity? You know, you've got to you've got to be objective about yourself. And I know that's hard when 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 it's deep emotional level where you're right down at self identity. And and I think a lot of people possibly don't have the intellect for it. But I don't know. I, I try not to judge my fellow beings harshly, but some of them do seem awfully unthinking. You know, mm. um, what do you do? What can we do about all these young people that are? all self-righteous and, and full of indignation about, you know, the way the world won't accept them as they are. Well, we are a sexually dimorphic species. There are basically two genders. Um, there is a very small number of people who are truly in the middle, one or the other, and they've got the weirdest chromosomes, XXY, which is Kleinfelter syndrome. And there are dozens of others, but uh, they're very, very rare birds indeed. I don't know. How do we... How do we break this cycle of generation when even schools are not telling parents that they think their child is what they call transgender. That word transgender, in fact, was coined by a drag queen, funnily enough, who called himself Virginia Prince many years ago. And I think was trying to get a little bit of the cred that transsexuals had, and that's that's when they, that's when the word came into being. I don't mind being called transsexual, not even a tranny. I don't mind. That's what I am. You know, how can we get out of this? That is the question of the ages, Catherine, and I know that it's certainly something that keeps me awake at night, not just in for trans uh, ideology and gender ideology, but also racial ideologies and. You know, oh, the great, critical race theory and, is, uh, and all of that. Yes, and the government's encouraging this. Yeah. Do they want people to hate each other? We had a country where everyone was equal under the law and we all got along and, and a few of us were a little bit different. Oh, that's okay. I mean, the, the women's spaces. I mean, people like me have no business in women's sport. None at all. Mm. You know, and as has been proven with, with people like, um, Leah Thomas, the swimmer, and, and, and others. Men and women are different. Once you've been through male puberty, um, you can't undo 
some of that. God, I wish you could. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't, you know. I'm fairly fortunate. I'm only five foot seven and a half and not built too much like a brick outhouse, so I don't frighten the horses too much. But nevertheless, you know, what are people doing? Why, why do they all – of, all of these people that are in women's sport are men that are, weren't very good as men and that they, they seem to mm. – Want to, want to go and beat all the girls? It's going to it's going to wipe out women's sport if it's allowed to continue. And I, I believe the International Athletic Federation has said anyone that's been through male puberty can't enter mm. women's sport. And people, well, that's that's at least in athletics and track and field. But um, I mean, there's plenty of other sports where men and women compete on equal terms. You know, my, my favourite thing, which is you know, um, shooting clay birds and and, and targets and things. Having been an instructor, um, girls actually learn it very quickly and become very good at it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, people are so unreasonable, you know. I mean, just because us, what I call us old school trannies, we'd reached a, a pitch in society where we got our transition done. We merged back into society kind of on the distaff side. I've, I've been invited to women-only groups. They honour me probably more than I deserve, and accepted as one of them. And there, you know, there are limitations to that. Of course, there are. Sport is one of them. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in, in a communal changing room and have someone disrobe and, you know, I don't want to see willies um, dangling around. I don't care what they think they are. You stay out of places like that. Mm. If you really think you are really transsexual, well, go and do something about it. Short of going into a women's toilet when, you know, before you've had your surgery, and I had to do that, um, whereupon you, you behave with the utmost decorum, and I never had a problem. Because um, in a women's toilet, nobody knows what's in your pants because you're in the store. And, um, yeah, so I, I never had the least problem. But I'm expecting now that, because I'm not too hard to read, I'm expecting now that, you know, I can likely be thrown out of such places, you know, mm. because of what's been going on. And I can see why, you know, mm. these people are, what do we do about it? How can we change it? Well, that's one of the goals that we have here with Reality Check Radio is to continue to have these courageous conversations. And hopefully, mm. as you said, people aren't thinking critically like they once were. And hopefully we're able to give them a well-rounded view of the full story and that's why it's i just really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to me because it allows us to see both sides of the story and that's the thing whilst you're i mean i agree with you fully i do believe that there is a strong social contagion element Mm. with the current gender ideology the statistics are there traditionally it is more likely for uh, there to be a male to female transition whereas now those numbers have completely inverted and it's almost that, like well, that's, that's a, right. a social um, contagion females that want to be guys mm-hmm. um, are a couple of orders of magnitude more unusual and so there's very good biological reasons for that you know because the default condition of, of humans is female chromosomes aren't the whole story and without a prod in the womb, everyone would come out female, mm. you know. That's an idea that I think a lot of men sort of bridle at somewhat, um, but it's a biological fact, you know. You know, guys are, guys are girls with alterations, which <laughs> is putting it fairly bluntly, but sometimes the process of making a boy is incomplete or mm. sometimes absent altogether. 
mm. and um, you get people like me, but it doesn't happen very often. No. You know, it's, it's just a genetic accident. Mm. The problem is, of course, that it's, it's heritable because um, my daughter or my daughters carry my X chromosome because I only have one as far as I know. They got one from their mother and one from me because they're double X, so they're girls. Um, but the problem is they also inherit my ex with those lazy androgen receptor genes, they can pass that on to their male children. You know, I hope it's milled out. I don't know. We'll see. Mm, exactly. And it's all about this greater understanding. So, look, thank you so much for giving us your time because I think that this is a really important perspective. It is actually important to hear the, mm. another side of a story. Welcome, Rory. It's, it's good to know that somebody's, somebody's onto it and is saying something about it. You know, if, if, if ever I can help, you've got my number, just, just ring me. Oh, Catherine, that you're an absolute gem. I thank you so much. <laughs> I really do appreciate it. Do stay tuned with us here at Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. We've got more great content to come all here on Reality Check Radio. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the App Store's direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. It's, I have great pleasure to introduce to you now two young people which have a really interesting policy they've told me about. And I've been put onto this via a few other people and I'm fascinated by this because I'm a mum of two young sons and I'm always banging on about uh, what goes on with my two boys. But I thought it'd be ta- really great to talk to two young people who are two youth leaders uh, here. And I have got um, Javen, who's from Wellington. Nardo also from Wellington, but he's studies in Auckland. He's back in Wellington. And they're from Young Vision. Good morning, you two. How are you? Morning. I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. Tell me about Young Vision. I'm really fascinated by this. I'll start with you, Javen. What is it? Um, Young Vision is a group that's all around New Zealand and we are just like the youth arm of the Party Vision by Hannah Tamaki. Ah, the lovely Hannah Tamaki, which I, I interviewed Hannah here. She's absolutely delightful. So you guys have been really busy because you've been out supporting uh, your candidates during the election campaign. How did you find that? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was pretty fun. It was quite interesting getting more into politics and stuff, but I think it's really good now. Yeah. I guess to become more aware of what's going on in our governments and stuff. Yeah, and getting more involved, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the policy and um, the Young Vision. So how, uh, so you, that youth arm from the Vision Party, so what are some of the things that are really important, the values that are really important to you guys? Nardo? The policy that um, Young Vision has came up with is called Gender Steadfast, and it's something that we would like to see put forward to government, and it's belief that, your gender identity is synonymous with the assigned sex at birth and that there are only two genders, um, male and female. And the policy is what we want to put in place to protect those who hold that view and hold that value so that they can be free from discrimination, from hate speech, um, from harm and things like that. 
And what are the experiences from some of the other youth you're speaking to before we got started? I let you guys know that my sons are in the Catholic school system, so they shielded from that somewhat, but they have friends in the mainstream school system where that is not the case. Are you experiencing that with youth that you're speaking to? Uh, yeah, definitely. There's been different examples of youth at high schools, youth at even university who have was the main reason why gender steadfast policy was even created. There was a few examples such as um, I would say myself in my second year of university where, you know, we were introducing ourselves and we were, I would say, forced to include other people's preferred pronouns, even if that's not how we really wanted to do it. And you were shunned or made to feel bad if you didn't include it. And then there's obviously people who are a lot younger who really at school get made to feel like, no, your values and your beliefs are totally wrong. You can't think that. And they're like, but that's how I think. And I shouldn't be told that I'm wrong for that. So there are different examples of um, our youth who have felt that way. Yeah. What sort of support do you get from the universities? Because, you know, it sort of appears to be very one-way traffic in terms of an openness policy, a fluid policy around gender now, particularly in tertiary education. Have you had a chance to present this policy to those at the higher echelons of university? Unfortunately for me, this policy came out during my last year. So I've just finished my degree and I wish it had come out a little bit sooner. Because I always felt like, you know, there wasn't enough support for me or people of my beliefs at the university. It was always kind of just for those um, like LGBTQ communities or rainbow communities. And they always had the support systems, like seeing posters all over the place or clubs. But I was like, where where do I get a club? Where do I get to feel like I belong here? I'm going to be spending like four or five years here. That was my experience, but I don't know about Nardo's university. Yeah, what about you, Nardo? Because you're still in the system, aren't you? Yeah, so my one's a bit the same. So I haven't like talked to any higher-ups or whatever um, just yet. Yeah, I think it is, um, I guess, the culture and at least university from my experience, it's um, a lot more the other way. As in, Even in one of my papers, we learn about gender and sex and um, they explain that, that gender is fluid, it's different from sex, and that if you, like, if that question were to pop up in one of the tests and something and you were to write, um, you know, there's two genders or, you know, they're, they're the same thing, then you would be wrong. Do you struggle with that, Nardo? My husband's currently gone back to university and after a 30-year break, he has found the same thing. Like, he has done one paper, which was compulsory, and he, he said the whole thing, he said it felt like a lie. Me and quite a few other students um, who do hold the same belief, but because it's, I guess, like the university and, you know, we're trying to stay in uni, we're just going there for school to learn, mm. to, um, you know, get that degree. But a lot of people, I guess, feel a bit scared and not as confident to stand up and say what they believe in because they're afraid of being ostracized, they're afraid of being discriminated against. But I think that's why I think gender steadfast is really important because it gives us the platform to say, hey, like, this is my beliefs. I know you have your beliefs, but we should be able to respect each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I find this topic has been one that has galvanised a number of people who may have been separated on other issues, but have come together on this one. So have you found that, because no one wants to talk about it, like if you're not in the mainstream paradigm, they all keep very, very quiet. So when you, you know, when you get that moment, 
that you figure out that someone sort of agrees with you on that particular issue and it all gets very hush-hush. Do you have those quiet conversations with them and find that you're able to actually find that common ground, even though you may have wildly different opinions on other things, but you can come together on this issue? Yeah, exactly. So I think it was um, not too long after we had a lecture and they were explaining you know, gender and sex, then like me and a couple of my mates were kind of talking about it, like, hey, like we don't really believe like this is a lie for you know according to our beliefs and we don't really believe that even though we have different um other beliefs and stuff but we were able to come together on that issue yeah yeah what have been your experiences like because i mean i know both of you hold um i'm as well i'm making a big assumption here that you're both holding strong christian faith uh, because you work with vision is this an issue that you have found because most faiths have uh, very conservative views around sexuality. So have you actually found that this has been a bridging issue amongst uh, multi-faith participants at school has, or at uni? Has that been something that you've experienced, Javen? Yeah, I would say so. I remember when that bill for the um, banning conversion therapy um, was coming through, and if you had different views to everyone else, you were made to think that how you see things or how you believe things is completely wrong. And I always thought I was alone um, within my Christian values. And then I made a post one day and someone from my uni responded and he was like, you know, I was actually really scared to share my values and my beliefs about this situation because I thought I was the only one. And so just taking that little step and making a post made someone else know that there was someone for them. Yeah. And so then we kind of stuck together for the rest of um, our degree and we, we were like, you know, we have the same values. Um, we would go to each other if there were any issues sort of thing. So it was quite nice in that aspect, being able to find someone who's like the same as you in a way. Mm. But yeah. Mm. What sort of hopes do you hold looking at the coalition negotiations that are going on at the moment? And New Zealand First have some fairly critical ideas around gender themselves, whereas National appear to be a little bit, uh, they, they don't really want to wade into that issue. Do you feel sort of hopeful that potentially there is at least one voice in there where you would be able to, via your party, talk to another party that holds some power and sort of say, hey, can this be brought to the table? Do you feel you've got some confidence with that? Yeah, I would. I'd say that's definitely an interesting dynamic that's going to be brought through into the government, considering Christopher Luxon himself says he's a Christian, but he like hides his values quite a lot and doesn't speak up on it. But I know what I've seen from New Zealand First, especially that debate that they had with the young government debate about the sex and the gender, the toilet debate, that was quite good to see the New Zealand First candidate like stand his ground. So I do have a little bit of faith that maybe with New Zealand First in there that it might sway national a little bit. I'm not sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Do you see there sometimes when you are working with those who hold very passionate views on the other side of the fence, that they try to trivialise your faith and your beliefs and they won't actually take the time to listen? Do you get that feeling often when you're sort of trying to chat to people about stuff? They just want to shut down the conversation and move on. What have you struck, Nardo? A little bit like, hasn't been too much of that stuff going on, like as in, um, and I guess like debates and stuff between peers. Mm. But yeah, I think it is, um, I think it's an important issue, even if you're not Christian, even if you're not Catholic or whatever, like it's still an important value regardless of faith. So I don't think it should be shut down um, if, you know, people are saying, oh, I'm Christian. 
Yeah. What is the, in terms of like campus time, I mean, is this, those, like, like for example, those who are transsexual, I mean, we're talking less than um, 1%. They like, they're sort of saying that these numbers are creeping up now. So it's a very, very small group of people that a lot of accommodation is made made towards. Now, I'm picking there will be more Christians on campus than there would be trans people. So has that balance ever been considered or addressed, or has it been sort of almost, I don't want to use the word the tyranny of a minority, but it has certainly been a minority have been able to influence more policy and attitudes on campus than what they actually truly represent. Have you observed that? Yeah, so uh, you can kind of see it a lot when you're in uni that it's very, I guess, pro. I don't really know how to explain it, but they do have posters and stuff that says it doesn't tolerate transphobic um, behavior, so you have to be inclusive and things like that. But if it also, I guess, comes at a compromise of the, all the Christians' beliefs, like it doesn't, you don't have to be hateful, you don't have to, like, be, um, yeah, be an egg or whatever. Yeah. But um, I do see that there isn't, as much, I guess, advocacy for Christian people, for people who have Christian beliefs and values. Yeah. Do they so it def- is kind of, yeah, kind of. Yeah, makes sense. Do they actually define what inclusive means? Not really. Like throw the word out there and expect you to know their definition of it. I get, yeah, I haven't really seen any definitions up on campus. Because that's the thing that's really crazy. I mean, what do you think about that, Javen? I mean, if you because you, you as Christians, would you would have thought that inclusivity would also in, be respectful and inclusive of your beliefs? But it's I, I've often found that it's inclusive except if, <laughs> and then you list all the things under it under them. Are you did you find that in the in the time that you were completing your degree? Yeah, I definitely found that. I think. You know, as you were saying, they like to use the word inclusion and inclusive, but at the same time, it's only inclusive if it matches what they want. And so a lot of the time, I always saw conversations or um, experiences of that side of people, and I always called it forced inclusion because it's, you know, it's not actually wanting to be inclusive. It's actually like, you know what, this is the right values. You need to uphold these values. Your values are wrong. And so it's like, okay, well, that's not really right. You're saying that I have to be inclusive of you or I'm homophobic or transphobic, but you're not going to be inclusive of me and my needs because isn't that what the society is all about? You're meant to be inclusive of everything and everyone, not just one side. So I always found it quite um, hypocritical, I would say. Mm. Do you find that there's a big bulk of the student body that are just trying to keep their head down, go along to get along and just get, are actually quite over a lot of this stuff, but they're too terrified to say anything? Yeah, I think so. I think it's also like like you were saying, there, there's a fear um, that comes along with it as well. Like, oh, if I don't, you know, I'm just going to keep quiet because of what if I say the wrong thing and then all of a sudden I'm shunned from these things and excluded from these things. And yeah, I can definitely see that with that side of things, like keeping their head down. In terms of support, so if like, because I mean, this is, you guys are being really bold by talking about this policy and trying to sort of get work done and holding your positions. Do you feel threatened that you may sort of lose your position at university because of your views? Or do you, I mean, you've managed to get through Javen, but you're now obviously going to be entering the workforce and the whole woke corporate environment or work environment is a whole different landscape. So we could explore that. But do you do you worry that you you yourselves actually have to hold your beliefs very close to your heart in order just to achieve your goals? 
Um, yeah, I could see that being an issue, but I think, you know, being gender steadfast, it, it kind of um, gives you that confidence and like that shield to be like, you know what, I actually identify as gender steadfast. That's where I hold my beliefs and my values and kind of not being, I would say, bullied into hiding your values so you can fit mm. in because there are a community of people who think the exact same as you. And now there's actually a place where people can go, you know, to say, yeah, well, actually I'm gender steadfast and I uphold my values and my beliefs. Where can they find you guys? I'm assuming you've got online communities where you guys can gather and talk and discuss and stuff. So where where are the places that they can find that? For gender steadfast, we do have a page on Facebook and um, includes, you know, what we're all about, what our values are, our beliefs. Um, and it's also has some stuff kind of just to educate our young people um, of what's going on and spread awareness um, that this is what we want. We would like to, um, you know, protect our beliefs. We would like to protect ourselves and make sure that we're not discriminated against, make sure that we're not from all the things that could happen, whether you're getting fired, whether you're getting kicked out of uni. Like we want to put it in place for government so that we can have our beliefs. We can, yeah. So it's kind of like to spread awareness as well. Yeah. So called Gender Steadfast on Facebook. Gender, gender Steadfast on Facebook. Excellent. We'll make sure we've got that link with the team. Have you got any other thoughts, you know, before you head off, Javen? I think mainly just um, iterating what, you know, Gender Steadfast really is for those who are still a little bit confused. Um, so it was actually a policy from this amazing lady called Jermaine Walters and she was our youth leader and so she would see a lot of us come home from school or uni and feel quite like you know I'm I'm being pushed out of things or I'm feeling unwelcomed because you know they're making me think that my beliefs and my values are wrong so she wanted to make something that um, would be able to protect us and our youth and so that's kind of where Gender Steadfast came from you know, if there's people out there who have been listening and been like, oh, my gosh, that's how I feel, then definitely check Gender Steadfast out. We have videos. We have more things on it. Definitely check us out um, and make sure to um, get in contact with us as well. We would we would love to hear from other people who would like to join and, you know, who have felt the same and get their experiences. Yeah, Nato? Yeah, I guess just for um, people who may have the same beliefs about um, when concerning gender and stuff is just to maybe contact us, get involved, because I believe that um, it's a lot better when you have people coming together. We're a lot stronger. Yeah. Um, and just from, you know, talking with classmates, with friends, there are a lot of people who do hold this belief, that do share the same values, but a lot of us are just a lot more silent because when you look at the, I guess, more of the higher up things like school, uni, work, they're kind of against those beliefs and they're kind of like, um, I guess they can force speech as well. Mm. So, and you don't want probably, to be in a place where you feel alone, isn't it? That's not a good yeah, thing. Exactly. It's not a nice place wanna, to be. And don't want to um, be scared of being hated against, being fired, being kicked out. But yes, I guess just to contact us, message us if you have any questions, any queries. Oh, that's fantastic. And particularly too, this time of year, as a lot of people are transitioning from high school to university or university mm. into new work, you know, different environments. And it's always good to know that, you know, sometimes in order to be able to tackle your new environment, it's nice to have a safe place that you can go to just to go and get stuff off your chest and be around people and know you're not alone, isn't it? Oh, that's been fantastic. This has been uh, Javen Anato from Young Vision. And I really 
appreciate your time to come and talk to us today. So Gender Steadfast is the name of the policy. Facebook is where you will find the page. Do go and check that out. Um, thank you so much for giving us your time this morning on Counterculture. Greatly appreciate it. Don't disappear. Oh, There's you. still great content here to come. Marty will be back with Media Matters, and we'll even probably squeeze in a little bit of Woke News of the Week. Thanks, guys. See you next. Thanks, Marie. If you're feeling rushed and need a little help with the silly season fast approaching, at RCR we've got some great merch options that are growing from pens to mouse pads, clothing to coffee cups, bumpers to bags, and our very popular fence signs. Or why don't you treat yourself to a subscription to our Foundation Members Club? Just go to the website at realitycheck.radio to find out more. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. And of course, as we do this time every Wednesday, it's time to talk to Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. I am a little colicky with the ingestion of the weekend papers. Oh, yeah. It was pretty high fiber. Oh, she was chewy. She was very, very chewy. I just ended up covering, I covered off the main four, and I have to say, oh, good grief, I cannot abide any more whining about this coalition negotiation. It'll be done when it's done, people. I mean, the, the funny thing will be when it's done and then the media start shitting clocks because it turns out maybe Winston Peters is the Minister of Broadcasting and maybe New Zealand First get their um, COVID inquiry, which starts to look at the dangers of having a bought and paid for media that's just parroting the government line on things that turn out to be not correct. They're not going to like that. So they might, might need to be careful what they wish for. Oh, I know. And they do, they obviously don't do well on slim pickings, that's for sure, because it was there was lots of opining going on. I got really, really annoyed. You know, some of them were saying, oh, it's been five weeks. Even Christopher Hipkins, he had a bit of a tanty over it about being five weeks. But I thought, no, I'm going to have a look at some of these numbers because the reality of it is, is that I think they've been a bit unfair. It will be done when it's done. I would much rather that they don't rush it and they get a proper deal in place. And I looked at it, yes, whilst it's been five weeks, five-ish odd weeks since the election, it's the specials that actually make all the difference because at the end of the vote, once the the day after and and the hangover had worn off, for national, they very, very quickly realised that, ooh, actually, there are a whole bunch of dynamics at play here, and we don't necessarily know how we're going to be able to form this coalition. And that is primarily in how the specials will swing, and we all know that they tend to swing left and not swing right. And the other big factor was the overhang. At that stage on election night, the overhang was sitting at, at one seat, at 121. We now know it's blowing out to 123. So, you know, whilst... Um, we know Luxon had already ironed out a lot of coalition negotiations with David Seymour pretty early on. It was when the specials came in 19 days ago that actually those negotiations could start in earnest. They were all saying, oh, well, Jacinda got it done so much faster in 2017. No, 29 days, people, 29 days. We're at day 19 now. And so. those negotiations were mostly just saying, yep, you can have that, yep, you can have that. Yep, oh, well, you, want, you want that money, once done, or how much for that fund? When, okay, once, yep, 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 that's what it is. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting to, uh, I had given some thought about what the media could be doing during this time. If they were motivated to, they could be really going through some of the issues that the incumbent government has, has got to face. They could be 
talking to prominent New Zealanders about what they thought was the most important thing. They could be analysing the impacts of the failures. And I mean, we always talk about education. I think it's the most important issue that that we've got to get right as fast as possible because it, it carries such terrible consequences, having gotten it wrong for this long. And there was very little of that. There was uh, a few pieces around the treaty and the fear-mongering of what a referendum would bring, but there was nothing about education reforms. Did you hear about Rangiora High School? No. Right. Well, Rangi, you'll appreciate this. Rangiora High School was did a big rebuild, and it was one of those ones that went into that whole open class learning structure and it was all into this new someone heard a ted talk once and thought it's a good idea thing guess what they're doing they've now announced for next year they're going to be building walls and creating single class spaces because shocker this format is too disruptive and distracting for both teachers and students they've only got teachers words for that because they never did any follow-up studies on its efficacy I mean, there was that Heather Duplessy Allen interview about how the Auditor General had flagged some problems with the government actually measuring. She interviewed Christine Rankin, former head of WINS, and the Ministry of of Education apparently uh, measures its performance by engagement with its website. It's interesting that some of those stories are coming out now because there, there were a few of them now and then prior to this, but I would have thought there was a lot for the uh, Auditor General to be having conniptions about mm. uh, in the past six years. You uh, mentioned the editorial in the Sunday Star Times uh, by Tracy Watkins being in the midst of all of the hand-wringing about the carnage in the Middle East, being one of the the few people who actually brought the spotlight back to our own dead babies. Not just that, there was an article in the paper last week, I can't remember which one, talking about the horrible mistreatment of a couple of children and one presenting, you know, being seen by by an Oranga Tamariki worker in a car with bruises all over his face, compression in his spine, been sleeping in a urine-soaked duvet in a bath where he hadn't been allowed out of. And the point made in that uh, article, which I don't have to hand, so I can't quote it directly, but it was from Child Matters, the Child Matters CEO, saying, you know, for every dead child, there are many more abused children and there are many, many more neglected children. Often neglect psychologically is is worse for kids. So what we're seeing in terms of the 50-plus deaths a year is is just the iceberg of of those, yeah. Yeah, and it infuriates me that the government and, I guess, uh, to a certain extent, Maori leaders are like, no, no, this is our thing, we're going to solve it. It's like, no, you haven't. Mm. You haven't solved it. You don't seem to be making any sort of dent in it. I refuse to have an intermediary between me and the absolute unacceptability of that sort of abuse and neglect happening Mm. in a country where enough resource to feed hungry children well, I just look at this baby Ruth thing and they the number of suspects and people with this are, are, are incredibly small. And the fact that OT were aware of issues there, and I just look at baby Ruth and I think, well, I mean, for starters, anybody that calls their child ruthless empire, really? Hmm. I'm surprised that it actually got past birth, deaths and marriages. Usually they're fairly strident on these sorts of things. But anyway, that aside, I just look at this and I think this is going to be another Nia Glassie. This is going to be another... Kahui twins. Kahui twins. Mm. People knew. They know. 
and they've closed ranks. They're doing the same here. And unless you fix all of those sorts of triggers, this will continue on. That, to me, is where this focus should be. Yes, I know it's really awful that there are all these children dying in the Middle East. I take that on board. And part of the reason this came up is that it was the International Day of the Child. So there was lots of these stories and letters talking about this, trying to place a highlight on this. And I actually, good on you, Tracy Watkins. Good on you for writing this article and Mm. and actually highlighting what's going on in our own backyard because I think it's very very easy to get distracted by what's happening elsewhere and I know that Karina Shields has been really hot on this she wrote a fantastic piece in plain sight uh, which I really recommend that you read because this is just it you know I look at all of this and I actually pulled out the old serenity prayer which is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I actually think we need to remember that when we're looking at a lot of these issues, because there's a lot actually that we can't change, but we're tying ourselves up in knots, mm. believing that we can. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing that Tracy Watkins just dipped her toe into, which comes back to the point I made about, you know, Maori leaders saying, oh, this is a Māori issue, we'll sort it out. We also know that there had been a knee-jerk response to a highly emotive and sympathetic documentary about child uplifts that led to a dramatic reversal in the number of babies being removed from at-risk homes. You know, the the media's got some blood on their hands with this. It's Mm. that reflexive idea, oh, you know, these people are just misjudged. I've seen kids in gang environments. They look miserable. They look like they don't get the care that every child deserves. Not all, not all. But if you give them the option of being cared for, relate, spoken to, fed properly, the cultural thing second to that. I'm sick of pretending that Māori are a different species. Those human needs are all the same. And if if it's a choice between staying in in an environment that's manifestly dangerous for a child or going to be in an environment where they're cared for while the family sorts itself out, I'd take the second option every time. Oh, absolutely. As, as heartbreaking as the, as the sight of a mother not wanting a child taken off her is, again, I have to live in, in a country where this is happening. We need to stop zeroing in on government for everything. We, we've got to start thinking, well, if... Teachers at school know the kids who aren't getting fed properly and and the families who are struggling. You know, how do we make some contact with those families and say, hey, you know, let's get together a bit. Let's work through some of this to to help maybe take some of the stress off or let's make it so as as a neighbourhood we've got better outcomes. It's also been the legitimisation of really poor behaviour. And it comes back to that whole constrained, unconstrained vision of Thomas Sells. I mean, the unconstrained vision is there is a problem and every problem is able to have a solution and therefore you can have intervention and you can fix it and you can make all boo-boos better. Whereas, of Mm. course, the constrained vision is is that human nature is human nature is human nature and it doesn't matter what colour or creed or where you come from, there are shits out there and they're going to do really awful, nasty things and that is a constant. So how do you mitigate the constant because you know that the constant is there? And there are always going to be poor families. And when I say poor, I I don't necessarily mean financially poor, but poor in education, poor in behaviour, poor in morals, whatever you want to apply, that will then display really poor behaviour. And the children are the ones that are 
most vulnerable in, and are affected. And it, and that normalizing behavior that we have now, I find really disturbing. And excuse making. Yeah. It is excuse making, and that's where, of course, the the roles of faith used to step in. And then in the paper, I could not believe it. Did you see the whole expose? Obviously, the headhunters can afford a PR consultant. Did you see that? Yeah. Far out, fluffer duck, really? Yeah, we, we need a radical new approach to the way that the country is being run. You know, there, there are so many things that we just seem to accept that are absolutely wrong. And, that, and that's the first hurdle to get over is to just shuff off that neo-Marxist idea that, well, you know, one thing's as good as another. There's no absolute truth. I just um, saw that article and, you know, that whole sort of, you know, behind the veil and in the inner sanctum. They're trying to sort of normalise it. And it's like someone trying to normalise adult Hitler. Oh, don't worry about him. He's just a vegetarian artist. You know, it's like, for goodness sakes, people. Really? Mm. Sorry, I've got my ranty pants on today. Well, it's 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 hard not to feel frustrated. And it's especially uh, head slapping. I don't know which... Uh, which thing to start talking about first with this, but just watching the left try and explain why they lost and why people have had enough. And, I mean, you know, I guess if you want to go straight to the real guts of that, it, it's uh, the election of the Argentinian, yeah. Argentinian president. I cannot wait to see how the international media are going to lose their shizzle over this. Well, I mean, what a breath of fresh air. You sent me the Tucker Carlson interview with him. So for the listeners, if you're wondering what we're talking about, Javier Millet has come out of nowhere in Argentina to win their election by a solid 10 points. He is uh, a tele- he's actually an economist by training, and he is uh, he was also a soccer star. He played in a Rolling Stones cover band. Yes, he played in a Rolling Stones cover band. He's, he's got great hair. Yeah, he's got fantastic hair. He looks a bit like the guy off of Clockwork Orange. Yeah. He's, um, he has certainly been a firebrand, and he's gone and set alight the electoral process in Argentina. Now, if you've ever spent time in Argentina, and I have, it is the most stunningly, it, A, it's a very large country, um, but I think you don't appreciate the absolute scale of the place until you're there. And it's also one that is has this incredible grandeur abated a bit faded. And one of the things that Mele is, is he's a self-avowed anarcho-capitalist and libertarian. Now, depending on the media that you read, some say far-right radical activists, but anyway, he he considers himself a libertarian, and I say libertarian with little L, not big L, and an anarcho-capitalist, and he is deathly allergic to communism and socialism, and he's now gone and swept to power in Argentina on the back of an absolute deep frustration of ongoing socialist policies that have led to rampant inflation, so currently 143%. So finally, the people have had enough. He has come out of nowhere to sweep the election on the back of the vote of a lot of youth voters. If you want to know the amount of time, obviously, it takes to swing young people away from the perils of communism, it obviously is 100 years because that's how long they've had socialism in Argentina. We hopefully don't have to wait 100 years. And a lot of younger people, that, and you'd know this because you've you've got... uh, 
A couple of them parked up here, couple, yeah. A couple of them parked up there. Plenty of them know that they're getting lied to at school. I mean, it's a traumatic experience, and it's one a lot of New Zealanders shy away from. You can see it when you start doling out a few facts after they tell you you're a conspiracy theorist, and you say, look, you don't need any theories. Here are some numbers. And they all but put their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 la. But when you do take one of those cards out and go, well, that's not true, and the people who told me that knew it wasn't true, then the whole house of cards collapses rather fast. And I mean, this is what's often criticized in the freedom movement is that you know they believe some things which seem kind of way out. And it's because, well, once you get a pretty good idea that the government knew that there were going to be heart issues with the vaccine they were calling safe and effective, they threatened doctors to the extent that people who presented with such heart problems were told maybe they had anxiety or it was all in their imagination, then it's natural enough to think, well, what else are they bullshitting me about? You can mock people all you like, but a far more effective technique is to present contradictory data. Speaking of contradictory data, did you catch Paul Brennan's interview? He did a catch-up interview with Guy Hatchard on Monday. Did you catch I that? didn't catch that. No, it was on my, it's on my to-do list. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. But one of the things he just happened to drop in there, and it was breaking news at that time that he did that interview, was Moderna have just had to, the regulators have just come in and trashed a trial from Moderna that they were doing on an mRNA vaccine for Epstein-Barr virus, which uh, some people may know as mono. There was 200-odd people in this trial, and someone developed myocarditis. And the mm-hmm. regulators came in, shut it down, junked it, and said, no, not going any further. Now, isn't that interesting how they've gone in, absolutely done that with that trial? I mean, is this because they've now learned to lesson? They've, they've lined their pockets so much with the COVID vaccine that when it actually comes to another that they've tried to roll out for another virus, that that's what they've gone and done. I'd have to listen to the interview, but um, it's better than uh, opening the double blind trial and just vaxxing everyone once uh, the the results start looking worse. The thing about that is, is the fact that the regulators have gone and done that says to me that there is actually an awareness there. So is the tide starting to turn? Will they start looking at things more closely? And then when we bring everything back to where we are here, which is what we should be worried about, except the courage to change the things that we can, what are the things that we can change? Well, we need to get a proper inquiry to see what are the things that we need to yeah. change. Yeah. I mean, before that uh, Guy Hatchard interview, there was the interview with Simon Elmer. Did you catch that? No, I missed that one. Author and co-author of Architects for Social Housing on his new book, The Great Reset, Biopolitics for Stakeholder Capitalism. Fascinating. He was talking a lot about how things with seemingly innocuous stated reasons are related to what he called the four horsemen. I can't remember all of them, but one of them was uh, digital ID. Another CBCDs would have been another one. Yeah, the, the thing that we're seeing popping up everywhere, congestion charges which he said, you know, it's all cloaked in green, but it, it's basically designed to install equipment that reads number plates and starts to determine how far cars are moving, uh, possibly with a view to limiting how far they can move. And the other thing he was talking about was um, Agenda 2030, and I think the other one may have been climate change. But that's really worth a listen to, and I, I'm going to have to find that book and read it. It sounds uh, fascinating. Well, and to that end, Andrea Barnes, 
on the Sunday Star Times. She actually, and I thought it was quite interesting. I was like, oh, where are you going this week with this, Andrea? So she said to win back. soft fringe back again. And the coquettish smile. So to win back Wellington, Labour will have to go to war with the Greens. A meeting of the Council's Environment and Infrastructure Committee last week was the living embodiment of how far the left has drifted from working people. No shit, shit. <laughs> you know, from the, oh, great, we're only finally catching up with the breaking news. Yeah. Anywho, residents um, will now have to compete for a number of permits, and the proposal will drive out more than 1,000 hospital staff who rely on free parking. And what they're doing is they're getting rid of all of this parking in Newtown in order to put in a cycleway. Patiently and politely, a succession of healthcare workers explained the upshot of these plans. Underpaid staff are spending a large proportion of their incomes on fuel and now parking, equivalent to about an hour's pay every day. Those who still use the street parking will have to shift their cars every two hours, using their brakes not to rest or eat. There is a lack of affordable parking spots available for the staff at the hospital, and fees recently doubled around to around $120 a month. But for most travelling in from the hut, Wainui Amata or Pori, unreliable and inadequate public transport is not an option. There are also implications for patients who are too unwell to travel by public transport, both to the hospital and the nearby primary health clinic, which serves 10,000 locals. And for the residents of one of the lowest socioeconomic suburbs, who are now expected to find almost $200 in already stretched budgets to park curbside, the resulting questions from councillors came straight from the plutocratic fantasy land, earning it at around $120,000 a year with a free workplace car parked and the luxury of zooming into all of these meetings. These representatives offered up a vague alternative to nurses and porters. What about carpooling, alternative bus routes or even shuttles? Mm. It's just completely losing touch, isn't it? Like there is that total disconnect of idealism versus reality. Yeah, it's interesting. And she sort of says it is possible to rebuild Labour as a political force in Wellington that can both win over the left liberal vote in the inner city and get the support of workers in outer suburbs. But in order to reclaim the city, Labour is going to have to start a civil war with Greens. Who cares? Who cares about rebuilding Labour at this point? I don't see the value of it at this point. But I do, and I I know you love this idea, and I love it the more I mention it. I'd love to see Wellington Central just live with their voting choices. And I would like to be able to live in the nice conservative Papalopolis where we vote ourselves a a candidate that uh, allows us to solve some of our own problems with poverty and just take a lot of that middleman stuff out. You know, I mean, I've got family in Wellington and I I mean, I love visiting Wellington, but if you're going to spend millions and even billions of dollars on prioritising cultural projects over infrastructure projects, well, you reap what you sow, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the tragedy is, again, that it's on so much borrowed money. They've kicked the can down the road everywhere in New Zealand. This is just speeding us towards the need for a great reset. Well, this is why I'm so interested in seeing what is going to unfold in Argentina. So I happen to, I'm going to be back there this January. I will be really intrigued to see. I know he'll only be freshly minted and very little will have changed, but I will be intrigued to see the mood of the nation um, from January 2020 to January 2024 and see what those differences alike there um, because how much it is the bankers decide just to sort of trip them up 
Yeah. And, it's a dangerous and, thing to do saying you're going to abolish central banks. Just oh, ask I know. Abraham you, Lincoln. I know. Just ask yes. JFK. Yeah. It's not a popular move among people. And he's wanting to also dollarize uh, Argentina, so that means he wants to introduce the US dollar. So, and that is not unheard of in South America. I mean, Ecuador is on the US dollar, yeah. and he's very, very allergic to communism. So he's been very, very outspoken about his newly elected neighbor to the north, uh, which is Lula, who is a died in the wool. Well, he'd say socialist, but <laughs> Melee calls him a communist. Uh, and of course, he is not. People are saying, well, what is he going to do? You know, this will mean Argentina won't be able to break into the BRICS nations, which of course is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Well, somehow I don't think he'll be that keen anyway. He's, got, he's going to want to forge his own path. So this was one of the other interesting things around him because, of course, one of the sticking points between Argentina and, and the United Kingdom, of course, has always been the Falkland Islands. Mm. Melee has caused controversy in the past by calling Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister during the Falklands War, a great leader. His likely foreign minister has also suggested the rights of the Falkland Islanders should be respected. Argentina maintains the islands, called the Malvinas by the Argentines, as part of their country. The referendum held in 2013 saw that 99.8% of the islanders vote to remain as a, as a British territory. So he obviously has quite differing views and he's more conciliatory where the Falklands come into it. So I will be fascinated to see how things progress in Argentina because we've already seen it with Viktor Orban in, in Hungary that you can make reforms and see success. Now he's done it uh, with a supermajority in his first term, and he's now had a couple of successive terms to get in to do it. How will Melee go? Will he stay alive long enough to be able to achieve what he wants to achieve? Well, could there be some sort of thing that's between BRICS and the American empire? I've always said that there should be a UN of, of reasonable countries, New Zealand, well, formerly New Zealand. Maybe we'll get back to it. Norway. Guyana, Uruguay. You could just get these little countries and, and we could just be the voice of reason. Mm. <laughs> well, and that's just it. So Uruguay, which is just across the, the Plata, yeah, from Argentina, we'll see that's been run as uh, they had a dictatorship up until about 30-odd years ago, and they're now uh, run with a very solid uh, centre-right government, and they are the safest and most thriving country in South America and have been for a number of years. They're in a very, very like New Zealand. I mean, when I was there in 2020, that struck me. A lot of beef, a lot of sheep, lots of wineries. Very happy about well, that. The, the Buscadero likes some. She likes a good. She likes a good winery. Uh, so there's all of those beautiful beaches and banking. They have created an economy uh, based around solid, safe banking systems because they've seen their neighbours across the harbour. Wealthy Argentines and especially from Buenos Aires, uh, they have kept their money out of Argentinian banks, primarily popped them into Uruguayan banks in order to keep their money safe because of the fluctuations at home. And many of them uh, hold property in Uruguay so then they can bounce yeah. between the two countries. And we're talking a ferry ride here, people, so it's not a big ask. So then if you have two countries that become very economically stable together like that, I think you know South America is an underrated powerhouse and you've got leaders like Millet who just look 
you know, to the north, to that country that you've mm. spent time in, in Venezuela. And he's looking at that going, we're yeah. not going to be that. Yeah, well, you know what worries me always is if they're left to their own devices, and, you know, studies show that humans belong in groups of about 200. We can self-organize without without needing uh, complex punitive leadership. Things are just fine. We can work out our problems. We don't need government. And And I've argued in the past, this was one of the main reasons that the government had to jump in and smash the Wellington protests at Parliament, because you had these people looking out for each other, cleaning up rubbish, stopping crime, solving disputes. And it was just right in their face, right in Trevor Mallard's punchable nose, right under it, that humans are just fine without you guys dividing us up so you can rule us. And so it had to be smashed. Do you think Trev will come home or will he be clutching on to his Guinness and they need to. They need, uh, it's an embarrassment that that man is representing New Zealand. I will be intrigued to see state. whether they recall him. It was pretty. Emba- oh, well, I hope they do. I hope they do. He's a disgrace. You know, I mean, it embarrassed me that Damien O'Connor was um, representing New Zealand at APEC. The thought of Chris Hipkins being sworn in again as Prime Minister stings like an anal fissure, to quote George Costanza's father, Frank. I just. I just want them to go away. Mm. You also read that big bleating article by journalist Michelle Duff, who wrote a biography of Jacinda Ardern in 2019. And just listen again, it gets back to just listening to them flap around, trying to make excuses. What she arrived at was it was misogyny. It's misogyny. <laughs> I know. And, and also, too, the greatest uh, thing that she was most worried about with this new coalition coming in was the identity of the parliamentarians. Yeah. Who gives a rat's ass about their identity? I couldn't give a tinker's tuppence about how they identify, whether they're male or female, what colour their skin was, who they want to shag. All I want to know is is that they will come in and work collectively to fix shit. Yeah, they're competent, that they've got some experience, uh, that they've got some some sensibility with... uh, public cash rather than treating these things as their own little fiefdoms. She's rewritten the book, by the way. Most of our listening audience here probably did what I did in a bookshop and uh, turned a dune, because that was the book that sparked the turn a dune craze. However... So many misogynistic women. I know, I know. She's updated it and put in chapters in regards to how she went from being a deity to a demon. Javier Malay made a really good point about this, and I thought about Jacinda Ardern while I was listening to it. He said, in order for socialism to work, Government has to be omnipresent, omnipotent, and uh, omniscient. So they have to know everything, be everywhere, and and see everything. And that was her aim. You know, we are your one source of truth. Because our faith in God has ebbed somewhat as a society, it's more difficult for people to understand that these people want to play God. They want to change the weather through their little financial instruments, they want to play God. And they despise the idea that there's any external morality outside what they themselves designate. Mm. Actually, uh, as well as the hand-wringing 
that went on around how long the negotiations are taking and, you know, the PR puff pieces around how fabulous the headhunter HQ is. The, uh, the other thing that both you and I noted on this end was the climate catastrophizing that yeah. appeared. I skim read a lot of these because a lot of the science I know is your wheelhouse more than mine. It's very exciting, listeners. Marty and I got to catch up in real life this last week. It was oh, very good. And we yeah. actually were quite good if we didn't talk about too much worky stuff. It was it was nice. It's mostly me talking to Mr. Marie. Yes, exactly. It was you two going off doing your, your bro bonding. One uh, of the things that we did talk about, though, because we both live within the proximity of the ocean. Did you see the one about the banks and the environment in terms of the profiteering with the banks? Uh, I know the I only cut out to there was the, the other one I saw was public buy-in with response to climate change essential with the Auckland floods in January followed hot on the heels by cyclone Gabrielle the reality of climate change is now really hit home for many said the report's author WSP fellow Carly Mercer Carly the goddess of destruction of our economy maybe and a technical principal Gemma Greenshields, also from WSP that wrote the report, said, saw public buy-in as essential for lasting solutions. It's much easier to have those bold conversations when people are in a warm, dry home than when their houses are full of water. So what we're trying to do here is have a bold conversation. I want to have the contrarian view. I don't want to be portrayed as someone who doesn't care about the environment or supporting oil companies, because I think, well, it seems to be mostly a plan driven by bankers that makes me suspicious that it's just about impoverishing people and controlling them. Well, funny you should say that. Funny you should say that. Sunday Star Times, in the business section, banks change lending policies in the face of global warming. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Banks' climate policies reveal the impact of extreme weather on lending and the market power of the green borrowers, Rob Stock reports. One, they're zeroing in on flood-threatened properties. ANZ Bank of New Zealand and Westpac are developing tools to be able to identify flood and climate-threatened properties. On what basis in benchmark and science are you basing these models, ANZ, BNZ and Westpac? As yet, the chief executives of the bank say their organisations have not started turning down home loan applications on homes at a greater risk at flood. However, they all say that when insurers won't insure an individual home, they won't lend against it. That could leave the homes as stranded assets and the owners could find it hard to sell. If you've got some numpty who's creating a model for a tool for a bank to decide who gets lending based on the geographic location of your property with some sort of weird and wonderful generic formula for increase of sea rise. And they're basing this on a faulty model that the likes of Peter Foster in that interview with Jazz Preet and Don had already said is not based on good maths and here's why. Could you imagine the catastrophe that that will create, which is why it's so important. Do you imagine that it's accidental? Look, I tend not to want to go and dive out down there as much of, as you're you using, do. You're using that with fire in a lot of parts of America. Oh, you can't live here because you can't insure it. So you can't borrow on it. Yeah. And it's a way of hurting people into areas that they want, Just potentially at least. Yeah, potentially, which is why I think that it's really, really important that as you know, we need to make sure our voices keep getting heard with our elected representatives to actually push back on some of this rubbish. Which is why, again, I look at places like Argentina and places like Hungary and places like Uruguay, who are actually good, stable working economies and communities, because they're not buying into all this horseshit. 
the thing is always, well, what's the next punch? You know, if you dodge mm. a punch, you don't want to spend too long congratulating yourself because there's another one coming. If you're not thinking, well, where's the other punch coming from? It can crack you right on the chops. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Indeed. Uh, the other thing too is, did you see some of the migration numbers that have been popping in and out over the last little bit? Yeah, it's the solution to the problem, isn't it, rather than uh, helping. And this is where Hungary's committed that cardinal sin of of encouraging Hungarians to have babies rather than importing uh, angry military-aged men from uh, incompatible cultures. Oh, I know. And their tax policy is radical. I'm digressing now into the interview I did last week with Jolt, um, head of she. One of the things that Jolt and I didn't get to talk about was the university system, and that is fascinating. And We talked about it when we were together uh, this week. So we touched on the family policy and a bit on the tax policy. And if you haven't caught the interview, don't definitely listen to it. But one of his flat tax rate, 15%. He's, you know, he's very, very concerned about their inflation rate. He said, oh, you know, New Zealanders complain at sort of seven odd percent. And he said ours is, you know, 20, 22%. Bearing in mind the Argentines are 143%. So, you know, yeah. comparatively, ours really isn't that bad. But what we didn't talk about was the education reforms. And what this is really clever. What he didn't do is that he didn't go in and completely carte blanche eviscerate uh, universities or institutions in terms of education. He created parallel structures. So within uh, primary and secondary education, he went, which was very, very state controlled, bearing in mind it was only 30, 40 odd years ago that Hungary, 30-ish years ago that Hungary was a communist state. So you can imagine how utilitarian the schooling system was. He then went to the Catholics and the Calvinists and said, I'd like you to get back involved into uh, education, and which, as we know, that both of them, um, particularly the Catholics in this country, are very strong in education. So 30% of all schools now are um, faith-based in Hungary and provide schooling on classical liberal arts principles, so Western philosophy-based enlightenment principles. And in the universities, Instead of changing the structure within universities, because he could see that that's still a stronghold for those neo-Marxist ideologies there, and they always have been, that's been a place where a lot of them live, he then created a program that ran from zero all the way through university that took all of those enlightenment principles of art and culture and liberalism and the like, traditional education, and you could filter it all the way through from primary school, all the way through to high school, into university, even if you attended a mainstream university, but you could do these extra courses and programs that actually gave you an alternative education. And he left it up to the people to decide which system he wanted to go to. Wow. Shocker. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if you could choose where to send your kids and have them receive a grounding in philosophy and then moving on through? If you could choose a school and take your funding with you, the the old bulk funding model. Yeah, so it can be done. And uh, I hope that that we get back on track. (laughs) But but I hope that the trek isn't leading us the same place it always has, because as I said, we really do need a radical new approach. And and I think part of that has to be between New Zealanders uh, without necessarily the government growing between us like a cancer. We've got to start doing our own thing more. 
Yeah, we do. We do. And And the government has to get out of our way. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. In the paper, you know, we noted, we talked about it earlier, how a lot of the couple of the columnists used the International Day of the Child as a way to put a highlight on what was going on over in the Middle East. And full credit to Tracy Watkins, she chose not to do that, and she talked about baby Ruth. So, you know, definitely big ups for Trace. One of the things I did mention to you, and you were completely unaware of, November 19 was also International Day of the Man. Where was the hoo-ha around that, Martin? <laughs> One of the things I've said before is men have got to get over their rage at uh, feminism, specifically not towards feminism, but toward women. You know, we've been played. We've been divided. It's been used to break up the family unit. We've got to kind of get over it and return to, uh, to our masculinity and allow women to return to their femininity. And, and I've noted before... This happens within our little movement. Mm. People might have noticed this about, for instance, the way we communicate. It's very respectful. It's not flirty. It's not overly sexualized. It's it's, it's the a, way men and women should speak with each other, right? It's a grown-up conversation. It's a grown-up conversation. <laughs> ah, I had that thought at one point where I thought, man, it's a shame that you know men are no longer you know, seen as the leaders of, of the family, you know, it would make things easier. And I, I thought in the next instance, maybe you need to just do it. Just step up and, you know, mm. take your lumps, but just set a good example and hold yourself to a standard. And as I go back to God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, that's good advice. That is good advice. What highlighted it, because I had a bit of time to read there, I subscribed to The Australian Spectator, and Mental Health and the Christian Mad by Greg uh, Bonda. And, you know, he was talking about how, was amazed at how there was no great hoo-ha for International Men's Day. And he talked about his concerns around uh, suicide rates for men. And this Mm. is something that Mike King has been talking about for for a long time. John Kerwin, I know, has done a lot of work in this space. You know, men are three to four times more likely than women to die by suicide. There's around two and a half thousand men died in Australia of suicide in 2022 compared to 794 women. And what they did is they created just a quiet show of sort of respect up at Canberra and they pl- they placed shoes, a single shoe for every single uh, man that took their life in Australia. And, you know, that's quite a powerful statement. And again, it's something that no one wants to talk about. I mean, there is, there has been a demasculization of men. And again, unconstrained and constrained visions. Human nature is human nature. And if you're trying to change the nature of men by this hyper feminization, this is. And hyper sexualization. Yes. You know, know, just giving you know porn you you've you've mm. done some great interviews on this in your show you know the corrosive effect of pornography it developing that reflex in you to seek out titillating things to look at and if you go to the gym you can spend a lot of time averting your eyes and that's the right thing to do it mm. leeches energy out of you so if you're a bloke out there a few days back 19th there you go, International Men's Day. And, and if you are, you know, if you're someone who's who's struggling, talk to people and and understand things get better. You know, there's that horrible uh, 
story about some guy who jumped off the San Francisco bridge. There's been a few of them, and they all said two or two or one. As soon as they left the the edge of the railing, they realised they were making a horrible mistake, mm. a terrible mistake. Again, this is something I would like to do in, at a community level. It's it's like well. Let, let's have zero suicides in this neighbourhood. You know, if you're in, if you're struggling, come, come and have a chat to to this group of people, and let's give you a purpose. We've mm. got some missions we need some help with. You're needed. And one of the key factors in that article, the Spectator article, was disconnection with community and loneliness. Mm. And as you said, you know, a lot of men have been. It's more acceptable now to break families up. I don't. I, don't, I get this feeling that people are not working is hard to save marriages as they once were. Yeah. No, like marriages become disposable. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've got to burn your ships in a sense. And and if you you've got to just take divorce off the table and guts it out. Mm. And now I look, I realize that every single You've got to make better is, choices about who you marry in some cases. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. But also do it's 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 there are there are times and differences, you know, you, you do have to work it out. Gad said, and when we talked about the sad truth about happiness, he had two sort of main things in terms of happiness. But the biggest one is around your choice of life partner mm. is crucial, yeah. absolutely crucial. And again, not being together, you know, the, the disconnection that people feel. Yeah. We're not actually physically being in the same place as each other. Like we had a great catch up, even though we were only there for a little over 24 hours. It's so nice to, for the four of us all to get together and have grown up time where we can just shoot the shit, you yeah. know, actually be physically together in the same place. That makes a difference. Communicating over a screen is not the same. And again, the pandemic normalised that. Yes, there are some conveniences, but it is not the same as being in person, which is where things like churches and community groups and hobby groups and uh, sports clubs, those were all the fabric of our communities through mm. the 20th century, and they have been eroded in the 21st. Yeah, singing together. God, God knows what we lost when we stopped doing that once a week getting together with some other people and having a good old sing. Yeah. So it's, no, it's, it's there's plenty, time there's to... plenty of, of areas that we could rejuvenate with great effect, I think. Mm. Hey, um, I've got a good a good news story. Oh, go you. What have the, you got? The battle on to bring Upham story to film. Did you see that? No, I in... did not. So is this Charles Upham? Oh, no, it was in, in yesterday's paper. Yeah, Charles Upham. And, man... Can't wait for that. My wife and I used to work with his granddaughter. I was in their family batch once, and I was looking at their bookcases. I always do because I love books. And uh, I'm very fond of Somerset Maugham, who was a very popular uh, novelist in the early part of the 20th century. Great, great writer. And I saw a Somerset Maugham book and uh, picked it up and and had a look in it. And in the front cover, it was um, it had Charles Upham, 1944, and I thought, man, this is the book that I'm holding in my hands that Charles Upham read to unwind on the way home from winning his two Victoria yes, Crosses, and mm. it was a it was a great thing to hold. Just just thinking about that, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that they've replaced the writer uh, with a pom, which uh, originally it was. Um, I think Tom Scott, who's, who's an enthusiast and you know, really 
keen on Upham. So that that's a shame. It should really have a, uh, a Kiwi director. Apparently, though, um, Peter Jackson only uh, does World War One. Oh. oh, okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. It will be interesting to see whether that, yeah, who they will get to direct that. It's good to ponder on what those men did. However, you might argue at the futility of so much of war, what we have to do it doesn't require nearly the sacrifice and is no less urgent in terms of safeguarding the freedoms of ourselves and our families. So be a little bit bold, people. Speak yeah. out. Yeah. Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins had a little um, one of her many little yeah. reels this week, and she was having a, a a bit of a moan around people that, and we get this in this community because we certainly get this on this station. I mean, you're not always going to hear stuff that you agree with all the time. And today's show is probably going to be one of those because, of course, just earlier I had an interview with a trans radical activist from Manchester. And as and actually it was, oh, I was shitting bricks. I won't lie, I really was quite terrified about doing this interview because she can be very prickly. And she, I, her, or, or they, trans yeah. woman, trans woman. So uh, as Dylan as Dylandy would say, him. Right. <laughs> uh, so I will give free to the respect and call her here. I was terrified because I, I have seen interviews and she's been pretty prickly. But we had a good conversation. Didn't agree with pretty much most of prickly what she had to say. on her chin. Uh, no, prickly as in she can be full metal, but right. she wants to be, yeah. yeah. She was a kitten with me, an absolute no. kitten, so I can't complain about that. You bring that up, you, oh, I try. But there will be people that will listen to that, particularly with some of the other content that I've had, and then you'll go, Marie, why did you do that? I did it because I think it's important that we hear from all sides. Yeah, and I would like you to... Exactly. And I would like you guys to make up your own mind on this. It's not for me to tell you what to think. So it's really important that I do that. And I also replayed Catherine Truscott's interview that I did several months ago, who's also also a New Zealand trans woman uh, who has a very different differing views to Frida. So we're not all the same. So anyway, Katie Hopkins had a big moan about people that don't who usually agree with her that don't always agree with her and get really really angry and say well I'm not going to follow you anymore or I'm not going to support you and jump throw their hands up in the air and, and make quite a big song and dance about it and we, we've experienced it here so here's the one thing one piece of advice that I have for people tolerance is a muscle like courage it gets stronger the more that you exercise it and if there's something that you hear and you think I don't like that I don't agree with that and that's annoyed me well scroll on or fast forward or listen to it and go, I don't agree with that, but well, okay, park it and move to, move on to the next thing. Not every single thing that you disagree with has to turn into an outrage. <laughs> so and you're wrong about some things. It's so vital to keep that in mind. There are some things I think and they're wrong. I'm incorrect about them. Hmm. We all, we're human. Wow. Uh, that's part of well, the concern. I hope we haven't been incorrect about too many things this week. We try hard not to be. We try hard not. Hey, we've got feedback. We've got feedback. In fact, yeah. you want to, should we tell the listeners the really funny thing that my husband did to you and I on the weekend? 
we got back from dinner and we were Martin and I both sitting on the couch and the lovely Liz from Inbox, we get a ping, both him and I simultaneously, and it was the lovely Liz from Inbox with some feedback. And so Martin and I sitting there with our phones reading the feedback at the same time. And my husband walks in and he's just he, he just thought it was hilarious watching us read reading our feedback. Photo at some point. Yeah, I should get the photo off of me, actually. It was it was hilarious. That just shows you, yes, we do read all the feedback. And, and we it really appreciate it, too. We it, do it, appreciate it. 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 it was so cute. My husband thought that he had great mirth at that. Right, this one's from Lynette. Hi, Marie. Listening to your replay on RCR this morning, Saturday, 18th of November, on how programs have been removed from prison, prisoners, and it reminds me of Dr. Paul Wood, who wrote a book, how to Escape from Prison. I've read the book and attended an event where Paul spoke. He relates to all the ob- obstacles that were put in his way by prison staff and the powers that be. I have no doubt you're aware of Paul's book. Just thought it follows on from what you were saying and what can be done. She is Lynette. I do remember when that came out, but that, yes, I'm going to actually have to look that book up because I have to admit the prison stuff that you and I have been talking about, That's I've got a little bit of mm. a beamer bonnet about that. I really yeah, do. Prisons, education, we yeah. need to sort them out urgently. From Shelley. Uh, Marie, your considerate and empathetic view with Rose Hunter was so d- well done that I did not want to finish. There could be part two or part three there as there were so many layers to a unique personal story. Thank you for Marie for undertaking the interviews with people who've had personal experiences in the sex trade industry and this area is filled with prejudices and misconceptions. And for Marie and Marty, I continue to listen to Media Matters each week and love the camaraderie and chemistry between the two of you. Continue the good work and the relevant coverage to the New Zealand made stream media that's from Shelley thanks Shelley okay this one oh this is the, the lovely Mike uh, and get well soon Mike I he, he's now back out of uh, Mike is a regular contributor and uh, he he's been in the walls uh hi Marie heard parts of your show yesterday while lying in my hospital bed but missed lots of the important parts uh, it's been very hard to pick my favourite show on RCR because nearly all of them are so brilliant. But yesterday you outdid yourself, not only with topic, but guests. The Hungarian, Hungarian ambassador, Scholt Hedeshe, was really interesting to listen to. And if there was ever a country for New Zealand to align itself with politically, it should be Hungary with their stand on gender teaching, but also that they have gone through the communist teaching and know exactly what to look for and how to stop it in its tracks. Then you and Marty had the most amazing talk about what is going on politically by informing us with news clips, and I was totally blown away with what the government members and the media are getting away with by either omitting or what's happening straight under our noses or just straight out lying about it. You're both so good at what you do. I always am made to feel better after hearing what you two debate about and inform us with. Big bouquet to you both from Mike. Thank you, Mike. Oh, thanks, Mike. I hope you're feeling better, mate. Yeah. Hi, Liz. This one is for Marty on Media Matters. Thanks for the uh, for the term PTS, describing the condition of people who are not coming to terms with the COVID aftermath, being trying to understand what's going on while I'm here. Please don't underestimate the magnificence of your career in cleaning. After attaining my history degree, I immediately started my own cleaning business. What, hell, what the hell else was, was I supposed to do? I've never looked back. Please put the surpluses into residential rentals and the traditional Kiwi retirement plan. Cheers, Mark, from the West Coast. Oh, uh, to, 
to Marie and Marty. What a fabulous media matters today. Kept my mind off the dramas. Thanks so much. It was always wonderful listening to you too. That's from Mike. Oh, no, there we go. So there you go. Lots of lovely, lots of lovely feedback. So thank you, everywhere. We do, we do appreciate getting it because it tells us whether or not we're on the right track. That we're talking about what you want to hear. So uh, get rid of a bit of that imposter syndrome. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like someone said, we have great community. Martin and I have known each other for a very, very long time. In fact, your daughter, I um, blew your daughter away because we talked about knitting and. And I don't think I, actually. Yeah, well, because I suddenly realised I'd never told you this because I, as people know, I work in the knit, hand knitting industry. And the person that taught me to knit all those years ago when I was five was Mrs. Marion Gibson, who was your grandmother. Yeah. She yeah, was my first beautiful. primary school teacher. And, so and you know, I'm sure there are some tales to be had from Waipiro Bay uh, mm. 100 and, 150, 160 years ago when uh, our ancestors lived there. Yeah. So yeah. that, that's the beauty of of New Zealand, isn't it? It's uh, and and it it's nice having those long associations with people, and we're going to live together, and let's get on with it. Yeah, exactly. And we will do it all again next week. Woohoo! So thank you very much. And remember, if you want to give us some feedback, inbox at realitycheck.radio and twenty fifty seven is the text number. I'll see you again next week, Marty. Thank you. Look forward to it. Have a great week. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. The Woke News of the Week this week, I thought I would read a very good article written by John Leake that was released on November 18th. It's from their Courageous Discourse substack, and it's called A Dictatorship Without Tears, Aldous Huxley's prescient 1961 speech. In 1961, President Eisenhower gave his famous military-industrial complex farewell address and what he warned about the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power. During the same year and in the following year, Aldous Huxley gave a series of talks at different institutions in California, including the UC Medical Center in San Francisco and the University of California, Berkeley, and which proposed that in future, pirates would no longer use terror in concentration camps, but far more refined methods of inducing servitude of the citizenry. Tapping into the understandable desire for comfort, security and pleasure, the new dictators will obtain the consent of the governed by inducing them to enjoy their servitude. At his talk at UC Berkeley in 1962, he explicitly contrasted his vision with that of Orwell's book, 1984. And here, I would like briefly to compare the parable of Brave New World with another parable, which was put forth more recently in George Orwell's book, 1984. Orwell wrote his book between, I think, 45 and 48, at the time when the Stalinist terror regime was still in full swing, and just after the collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime. And his book, which I admire greatly, it's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity, shows, so to say, a projection into the future of the immediate past, of what for him was the immediate past and the immediate present. It was a projection into the future of a society where control was exercised wholly by terrorism and violent attacks upon the mind-body of individuals. Whereas my own book, which was written in 1932, when there was only a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini in existence, was not overshadowed by the idea of terrorism. 
And I was therefore free, in a way in which Orwell was not free, to think about these other methods of control, these non-violent methods, and my, I'm inclined to think, to be the scientific dictatorships of the future. And I think that there are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world. will probably be a good deal nearer to Brave New World pattern than the 1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer not because of any humanitarian qualms of the scientific dictators, but simply because the Brave New World pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. That, if you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, the state of being, having their differences ironed out and being made amenable to mass production methods on a social level, if you can do this, then you have, you are likely to have a much more stable and lasting society, much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Another talk that Huxley apparently gave around the same time, and I'm struggling to find a copy of the complete transcripts, is quoted more often, especially the following passage. Most online references state that the quotation is from the speech he gave to the Tavistock Group, California Medical School, 1961, although I'm unable to verify this. At any rate, what he apparently stated in this speech strikes me as remarkably prescient. There will be in the next generation. Also, a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies, so that people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it, because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing, or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods, and this seems to be the final revolution. These reflections immediately resonated with me, because in recent years I've often thought that the power of our overlords derives as much from our own stupefaction and distraction as it does from their potency. Every passing day brings fresh revelations of the preposterously fraudulent character of the COVID-19 pandemic and their official response to it. The reality of it isn't even being concealed. It just isn't being reported in the legacy media. And a large swathe of the population is too stupefied and distracted to see what's right in front of them. This has been a dictatorship without tears. You can find that on the substack called Courageous Discourses by John Leake, released November 18. Thank you for joining me. And I have to say, no two days are ever the same here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. Peter Williams Afternoons are here next. And if you didn't catch Friday Afternoons show, make sure you listen to Peter's interview with Dr. Leah Willoughby, the former head of anaesthetics at Gisborne Hospital with her vaccine injury story. It is moving and a must listen. It will be interesting to see if the powers that be come after Leah as there are many doctors who have got serious concerns but are fearful to speak out due to the threats over their registration and ostracism amongst their peers, I will be certainly watching this space. And don't forget to tell us what you think. Text us at 2057 or email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. Time for one last song from Anglo-Irish pop duo. This is Maloko and the time is now. And I'll catch you all next week here on Reality Check Radio. 
You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.